You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the program. Uh, It is a continuation of our series on the 2020 elections. We've done Joe Biden's record, Kamala's record, and now we're going to look at the Trump presidency and take a, a, a gander at his record. Uh, We're going to talk about his campaign promises and what has he fulfilled or not fulfilled. Very fact-heavy show, so our show notes will be on the uh, website and in the the show description. So stay tuned to hear about Donald Trump's record. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh... Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome to the program. Thank you all for joining us today. We are so glad to have you here. My name is Chris Spangle again, and um, man, the uh, the as Wes Hamilton says, been waiting on these show notes. The Biden Kamala notes have been super sharp and great to use as a reference. So if you go to the Biden or the Kamala episode or this episode, there's a PDF of our show notes. I think. Um, these are like, I think we've got 20 pages, uh, 15 pages. Um, the, the, the same is so you, when you're debating with your friends, you don't have to go, what was that thing I heard on a podcast? You can go and look at our show notes, grab the, the, it really quickly. We're trying to help you get prepared to have reasonable fact-based conversations with your friends not just sort of your gut feeling we're trying to to really inform you on what's going on while giving you the libertarian perspective on these facts and so we source everything to all the show notes are in there we have to thank sam schultz who is our chief researcher many different people contribute uh to the research team we have probably about 10 to 20 people that that pitch in from time to time. But Sam is the one that really does a lot of these notes. He, he does a fantastic job with them. Um, but that is a great resource. It is the most underutilized resource. Uh, when we do these shows, that, that PDF is always there for you to grab and share with your friends and go, here's Trump's actual record. Here's what he actually promised. Now, we are not going to be able to do Trump's record in just one episode. Uh, we really have, have gone deep. We're not even done with the show notes. We still have uh, different sections that we're going to add to it. Today we're going to talk about his campaign promises and then take a look at what he actually did. Mostly in his first 100 days, he really tried to uh, fulfill many of these campaign promises, and then we'll see how he walked most of them back. So um, I want to uh, also direct you to We Are Libertarians so you can uh, find the uh, conversation I did with Dave Smith. My goal, uh, I've been critical of the Mises Caucus over the past few years, 
and uh, I have reasons why, which I have, uh, I don't know that I did a great job of getting my point across, but as you know, I'm always prepared in my preparation for going on. I had 23 pages of notes because I was really trying to think through my criticism. I had a conversation with a Mises board member. I talked to several different people in the Libertarian Party, um, several different Mises caucus members, trying to make sure that I was fair in, in what I was saying. And the distillation of that is in the outline on the post where I share the the podcast and the video. And uh, so hopefully that helps kind of shade that in. And then you can hear Dave's rebuttal to some of that. He was very nice. Uh, I think it was a great conversation, a long time coming. Uh, he was, I really do appreciate him having me on. And it seems to have sparked a good conversation, which is what I wanted. Uh, you know, my, I, I am not a, I'm not an enemy of the Mises caucus. I'm not an enemy of Ron Paul. I'm not an enemy of anybody. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at what We Are Libertarians does as a platform, we share other people's content um, as m probably more than anybody else. We're really here to help the movement. And uh, I appreciate him letting me give my perspective and, and f helping facilitate that conversation that I think is greatly needed. So, uh, you know, go there, watch it, see what you think. And, uh, you know, the YouTube comments are pretty much what you'd think. Insane, mostly, but uh, everywhere else it seems to be uh, well-received. I also want to thank our patrons. Um, before I say, I will, uh, the, uh, we talked a little bit more in depth about some of that in the, uh, the Patreon stuff. So if you want to hear more thoughts, um, there's nothing controversial in there. Uh, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm a bad businessman. I'm not trying to hear this controversy. I'm not trying to have a beef with Dave or anybody else. That's the, the whole point of going on was to squash any perceived beef that I might have with anybody. I'd have a conversation with anybody at Mises in the caucus or anything, including Michael Heiss, um, which I hear Mark Claire is trying to work on. So um, my goal is really for us not to make the mistake we made four years ago where we kill the the momentum of a presidential campaign in Gary Johnson that led to so many people looking at the party as a flaming dumpster fire, which led to four years of division. I don't think we need to do that again. We don't have to do that again. And I think we can all have a productive working relationship no matter what faction we're in. And so, again, thanks today for having me on. Um, but the Patreon is how we uh, pay for everything, and one important new upgrade is uh, that we have switched to a new podcast host called Megaphone. So you may look in your podcatcher and see that it says Megaphone instead of Fireside, and uh, make sure your feed is updated. If for some reason your feed stops working, um, then you need to update to the new feed, uh, that is uh, partially because I wanted to cap off everything from 2018 on and move everything from 2009 to 2018 behind a paywall. Um, like I've said, don't ever podcast while doing a uh, going through a divorce. And, uh, you know, not all that stuff is great. And it's it's light. It's not it, we're, we're a different show in 2020 than we were in maybe 2013 or 2017 or whatever. Um, and so I'd love for you to, uh, to join our Patreon. You can get the full feed. I up, I loaded all the old shows into this RSS feed that you'll have the ability to get to here in the next couple weeks. Um, when you transfer feeds, 
you have to give some time with the old feed to transfer over, so I can't give access to the, that full RSS feed just yet. Um, but make sure you're on the megaphone feed and not the fireside feed, and if it stops updating, that's why you're not getting the show. Um, but Harry, all of Loki Wall's in there, the Uncontrollables, which has not been available since 2013, rightly so, uh, Storytime with Gina, the Rob Kendall show from 2013 and it's brief run. All that stuff is back there. All the old, we are libertarian shows too. all of my appearances elsewhere. There's like a thousand pieces of audio instead of just the 400 you get on the, uh, the, uh, so I, I made the mistake of looking down. Um, Dean says, no, you want the new world order. Nothing to explain. Dang. One of the, one of the commenters on the YouTube was like, smells like cia to me i'm just like oh my gosh <laughs> uh joe says i'm here because i loved what gary johnson stood for a lot a lot of people including us are gary johnson fans and uh anybody what people don't understand is that when you trash gary johnson people like joe here don't hear you trashing gary johnson you hear joe thinking i'm not welcome and so just want to have a, a welcoming environment. So thank you to our patrons. Having two podcast hosts is more expensive, and Megaphone is a more expensive host, and our patrons pay for that. And I especially want to thank our $100 a month patrons, Anthony Meyer, Brad Tracy, Ed Brehob, Jason Doolittle, Jeff Bennett, Christy Avery, Matthew Durbin, and Reinhold. So thank you all. So... um Let's jump into the conversation about Donald Trump and uh, his record. Um, why don't I ask you guys this? Jo Joe Biden. Uh, Donald Trump gets elected. It's the day after Election Day. What is your perception on that day of how a Trump presidency might go? And let's be honest about our biases before we jump into this. What is your perception now? Let's start with uh, let's start with Harry, because I know Reinhold's going to talk forever. What is that a Trump twenty twenty mug? Yeah, uh, yes, it is. It's a Trump twenty twenty mug. Wh why do you have a Trump twenty twenty mug? It lets people when you're drinking from a Trump twenty twenty mug at work. People don't talk to you, and you can enjoy your <laughs> cup of coffee in peace. It's like uh, this last season, and I'm not sure if your mic is on your uh, your computer. It sounds like you're on your computer mic. Um, but uh, curb your enthusiasm. He wears a MAGA hat everywhere, so everyone will leave him alone. But I, I you know, just because we're fair and balanced, I have my mug here, uh, which is Putin Trump 2020. Um, thank you to uh, my my friend, high school friend Tony, who goes to Russia to find uh, people to hire, and he he brought that back to me. Uh, thank you, Christy Avery. You're welcome. My pleasure to support the Wall Network. Um, so Harry, your thoughts on Donald Trump the day after Election Day? How do you think the presidency would go, and how does how is your what is your opinion four years later? Um, let's see. There's a lot of different things I didn't think would go the way it did. It was very interesting to watch. Uh, I expected a lot of his policies to potentially blow up in his face or not go the way he was hoping. Um, but some of them did. Um, a lot of it, he just got lucky. Um, I think a lot of just came to the idea that uh, simple uh, the um, Congress really didn't want to work with the president. 
So that stalemated a lot of different things, which gave stability to a lot of companies, which allowed them to reinvest. I think his policies really do anything. I think it's just them not wanting to work with him and give stability and be able to plan, which helped drive the economy up. I have enjoyed the tax breaks. That was great. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I didn't expect to go this way. I did find it hilarious that when he did one, because I still remember back when Trump was the Joe candidate, you know, this guy is not going to win. This guy's not going to, uh, or he's not going to run fully. And here we are. It's President Trump. <laughs> yeah, I think the stability of, I mean, him saying, I'm going to cut regulations when Obama added a lot of regulations, it led to the idea of stability. I'm sure our friend, uh, people like our friend Ryan Lindsay would say, well, his corporate giveaways is why the stock market took off. Um, but, you know, from from that perspective, it, you know, it looked like it was going to I mean, obviously, you know, joblessness was down and the economy was really good until till COVID. And typically that's what we think we can expect from Republicans. All right. Well, I'm moving on. Uh, <laughs> Reinhold, on uh, what what is your perception now, Harry? I mean, uh, what with through the, his his uh, of the presidency going back and looking back the four years. Yeah, like well, now you know you look ahead and you're like, oh, okay, maybe it'll be good for business. That's what I just heard you say. Yeah, you know, it'll be good, good for business. business blah blah um, blah blah. But like now, where are you at? Uh, Honestly, I don't really think it as the he's nowhere near the worst president in history. Um, he is. It wasn't that bad to perfectly honest. I think it's been summed up. It's just kind of like having a honestly, if they really didn't blow him up in the news and make all these articles about him, he's kind of a mad president. He would be it, he would be forgettable, but they keep focusing on him. I'm sorry. Just in the grand scheme of thing, 20 years from now. That name is forgettable other than, oh, you remember that time we had that, you know, the the, uh, the reality TV star as a president? The guy, who, the guy who said a lot but did very little. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, they're focusing on – so this is going to be ingrained in everyone's head. And, of course, COVID, his COVID response, that's, you know, that's going to – well, I don't know. I, I, I doubt the – a lot of this – I think COVID is just going to be also a drop in a bucket when it comes to history in 20 to 30 years. It's going to be just that thing still. Uh, I think – it's really just going to be what's going to be known for this decade is just Trump. And it's because they keep laser focusing on him. That's yeah. But no. Uh, and if, if it's going to be four more years of Trump. Uh, well, okay. you've got Reinhold raising his eyebrows, his head's tilted down. He's about ready to throw up. He, he it looks like you couldn't disagree with Harry Moore. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, well, I could disagree with him more if he would have said, hey, Trump is a great president. But um, <laughs> to say that he's a Met president, uh, I think he I think this is actually uh, the most corrupt presidency I've ever seen. And this includes Nixon. Because um, you're old. Not well, just because older and I remember a little bit. But you remember Nixon, <laughs> most of the stuff that Nixon got in trouble with and all his people got in trouble with was because they were trying to do things that were. um politically motivated they were trying to win politics stuff political mm -hmm. stuff look at all the people who are getting caught in the uh trump sphere just because they're trying to make money for personal yeah. gain they're not even not even uh attempting to believe that it's it's all motivated by politics or trying to do better for the country and and those things that are 
kind of motivated that way. It's it's uh, rip Steve Bannon. I'm I'm going to interrupt you there because um, I wrote something that I just uh, I, I posted today on WeirdLibertarians.com um, in, in response to Steve Bannon because David French has been making this criticism that he he's wondering out loud basically. And if you don't know David French, he writes for the Dispatch, formerly of National Review. He's a Christian conservative. He would he would be your typical Christian conservative in 2004, but in 2020, holding to those principles, he looks like a liberal, and so he gets called a leftist a lot. He's he is not a Trump fan, and uh, he had Justin Amash on as soon as he announced on his podcast, and he kind of flirts with the libertarian line. Um, Jonah Goldberg has become almost an outright uh, libertarian if you listen to his podcast and read some of his writings. I'm like, in my mind, the dispatch is like the only conservative outlet that I read anymore. Like if where I go, yeah, I could see that point. Everybody else is just like, oh, but he was he was wondering out loud if the right wing media and institutions have turned into platforms for grift. And I I just want to read what I wrote, because I think this is an important point for all movements. So it's a natural end, basically, for any media based around a movement. Um, because as conservatives were pushed out of mainstream media, they left they left outlets that kind of sought facts and balance. And make no mistake, they were pushed out. And so part of the right wing uh, explosion of media that they always complain about is partly the left's fault. Um, but when you go to work for one of these outlets, the incentive is changing from being accurate to appealing to your base. So now everything kind of comes from a lens of, you know, culture, but Republican culture. You know, uh, this thing happened, but here's the conservative spin. And what happens when a movement focuses on purity, it, it stops trying to appeal to outsiders. You start judging who's the most pure and all of a sudden it, it funnels, it spirals down into a uh, an exercise in who's the most pure, who is the most dedicated, and often who's most dedicated to a cult of personality. It's just the Republicans highlight this so well, but this is a very human trait. Um, you know, and when ideology is very easy, right? You read a couple books, you maybe listen to a podcast, you follow the right people on Twitter. And then you parrot it. So a Tommy Lauren can be successful by pushing ideology because, you know, she she doesn't have to to think about what different perspectives might mean. Right. She doesn't. Truth is very hard to figure out in a large, complex society. And so it takes effort to listen to different perspectives and it it takes time to draw independent conclusions and it's harder when everybody around you is trying to focus on purity because peer pressure produces conformity. And so it's easy to kind of dine on candy every day and just follow people who are trying to be the most ideological, ideologically pure because they're trying to tickle ears. They're trying to appeal to just one version of the human experience in this country. And you know, what I go on to write here is appealing to people's passions instead of pushing them to think is a great business model. Many people get rich off of it, and it defines decency down to a point where a Bannon sees an audience as a cash register. At first, the discerning ones point it out and are name called for saying it out loud. Then eventually everyone else sees it and norms are reinforced. 
The conservative movement is a long way off from the founding of National Review. Buckley brought in every stream of thought in the movement to battle it out on the pages of his magazine to make his movement smarter. It was about ideas and not cults of personality. When the dust settles from the Trump era, I'll be curious to see if that spirit can return. The Dispatch is certainly trying, and I recommend it as the only conservative outlet worth reading or hearing. Will all the rest be held accountable for allowing the worst behaviors to flourish by tacit approval? Or will everyone pretend the past five years didn't happen? Now, before whataboutism is applied to absolve one side of any wrongdoing by accusing the other, this is not just a problem for Republicans. Any grouping of human beings focused around an idea suffers the same challenges, and these impulses should be identified and guarded against. Whataboutism really is the abandonment of principle because, well— the other side cheats and steals, so it's okay for us. Um, and so, you know, Steve Bannon is a great cautionary tale for what happens when you start to focus on purity and not facts, Reinhold. And definitely. I mean, that's it, it's just a, another example in a long string of them from this administration, right? So, um Going going beyond that and talking about, I mean, I know Harry talked about the money, the uh, the economy, and how great it was for business. But you have to remember a few things: is that as much as we disliked what Obama was doing, and I did, I wrote extensively about things I disagreed with on him. He had gotten to the trend lines down to where they were, and they just continued underneath Trump. And so Trump, um, when he saw the stock market having some issues, would then threaten the the Federal Reserve chair to do something about it, or he was going to take over the Federal Reserve and do it himself. So suddenly now he's manipulating the money supply. He's manipulating the debt. He's doing, he's doing things that we don't like happening, only he's doing more of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, he did the same thing with uh, the wars. Everybody's, you know, Obama was horrible and bombed a lot of people. And we, we hate that about him, but Trump bombed more people and dropped more bombs than Obama ever did. It just doesn't get the news media cycle because it's not, you know, it, for some reason it's just not there. It's, people are, t are tuning that out. Yeah. So, so what do you do? I mean, you've got a, a guy who's um, basically just a populist nationalist mm -hmm. who wants to institute all kinds of rules because he wants to dictate how people should live mm -hmm. and, how is that on authoritarian? How is that not, you know, nationalist? How is that not almost fascist at, at a point? So um, th the, what he's done at the Justice Department, I think, is abysmal and horrible and should some. It, well, at one point, he's not going to be in office anymore. And, it's, and there's going to be some price to pay for it, in my opinion. Or not. <laughs> No, I, th I I know a lot of times we, we have this happen where we're going to get the people that were in before, then the new president comes in and says, okay, let's let the past be the past, let's focus going forward, you know, that sort of thing, and they don't focus on it. But I think there's so much that has happened. He's, de he's defined decency down to the point that yeah. how do you come back, if you're Tom Cotton, how do you come back from that article saying, you know, send federal troops in and treat yeah. – liberals like prisoners of war like what like how do you come back from that how how do you ever and that's sort of the going on in the in the conservative movement for whatever arguments that we all may have in the libertarian movement add power to that instead of just one percent of the national vote like 
the the fights over the soul of the Democratic and Republican parties is very intense. And the the argument in the conservative movement is burn the GOP down or rebuild it in a different likeness. And I don't know how some of these politicians ever live down what they've said and done in the Trump era. I mean, when you look at the never Trump or the the against Trump issue of National Review that was written in 2016, all of those people like Eric Erickson, Glenn Beck, some of those other people are they have moved to the hysterical category of, you know, Antifa's taking over all of society like they really like talk like Antifa's about to invade every suburban town when really like they've invaded a few city blocks and a half a dozen towns for a few weeks. Like, and that's happened over and over in American history. And yet it's, it's not like they're not going to invade your chilies, <laughs> you know? So uh, they're buying into, uh, I think a lot of people on the right are buying into what the right bought into, including myself during 2003 in the run up to the Iraq war, which was a form of mass hysteria around the the, the president and the media and especially the right-leaning media had us all thinking one thing about the Iraq war. We were all perfectly rational at the time, we thought, but time gives us perspective and we go, wow, did I get bamboozled and lied to? And, you know, not being on the right, not being on the left, being basically a radical centrist at this point, I look at some of the culture war stuff and I just go, why are you falling for this? Like, this guy is just trying to scare the shit out of you to get reelected. Like, it, I've been through this before and it was George Bush. You know, it's it's it seems very, you know, and then you add the QAnon stuff and him flirting with QAnon and you're just like, uh, wow. <laughs> OK, um, my view. QAnon's, in, go ahead. QAnon's funny because it's like a guy who is taking the piss on a bunch of people trolling in a, a reddit right. got taken seriously has said some of the most outlandish things as predictions like jfk jr is still alive he faked his death he didn't <laughs> die in the plane wreck and he's going to show up at the big fourth of july celebration a year and a half a year and a half ago or a year ago and i'm like didn't happen but everybody's still like q q and and nothing he's ever said has ever come true and all he says is, well, trust the plan. They had to change it because of this. So just trust it. It's going to happen. Just trust us. For four years. The QAnon started. So there's this great podcast that I'm trying to, to open up to share with people. Um, and I listened to it last night because I've kind of followed the Q stuff. Like, you know, Tad Western is our 4chan correspondent that kind of tells me all the conspiratorial stuff. And so it's called QAnon Anonymous is the podcast, and it, it basically outlines all this. And I just listened to it last night as a refresher because I keep seeing this, you know, Laura Loomer winning. And mm-hmm. and the genesis of it was somebody going on 4chan or 8chan and saying Hillary Clinton is going to be arrested and federal troops have been in like all this stuff that Trump has done and got in place and all these judges are going to be arrested and literally none of that happened. And here we are four years later and Steve Bannon is going to prison, but Hillary Clinton is not right. So like that, if you're, if you're like one of these QAnon Trump is going to save us all and fight Pizzagate, like Donald Trump is the person that is in the photos with all the same elites that you're talking about including Jeffrey Epstein, that is all compromised. But somehow Donald Trump is the only one of these elites that you guys give a pass to. There's so many contradictions in some of this stuff. And he he feeds that because he wants 
those people to vote for him, you know? And you go, the QAnon stuff from the very beginning is somebody out there right now is sitting there laughing hysterically that they have bamboozled so many of our grandparents, you know? <laughs> it's not it's just boobers. It's, a, it's the greatest troll in the history of the internet. It has to be well, Harry, yeah, right? Like the, yeah. I think the state of was the state of Texas GOP's adopted one of QAnon's quotes as as their slogan now. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And, and did you see the did you see the meme I shared this morning about uh, a, basically a post from Steve Bannon years ago talking about how all the um, we're finding out so much corruption that all the Obama guys are going to be going to jail soon. Yeah. It is just, it's yeah, just like, you said that about Hillary Clinton. The only people going to jail yeah. are Trump people, but that's yeah. just the deep state fighting back, Harry. Yeah, that's oh, the deep sure. state fighting back. Yeah. But uh, a lot of it, okay, so a lot of it is I, I see is coming from is because the left and right really has stopped talking. They're not talking to each other. Right. It has become uncouth to talk to each other. It is everyone's their talking points of do not talk to the, anyone on the left. You talk to anyone, right? You're going to be canceled. You talk to anyone on the left. You're going to be canceled. You lose your credibility and you go into these holes. See, the left went to their hole. And they're kind of burned down and they've done this. So the right's going in their hole. And they're also doing the exact same thing. A lot of these uh, Republican um, or conservative right leaning like news rags that are just appealed to their base. It's the same thing that the left did. It's, it's basically, it's going to be their Buzzfeed, their Gawker, and it, that bubble will make itself and it will pop just like the other ones did. The, uh, the riots thing, I think uh, you've got to understand it's, it's not a few neighborhoods in a little area that's, gone around in a few other different areas it it, it is um and if you live in those areas it's very very scary to other sure. people i think it's also different because it's not just the news report reporting it to you it's people's personal twitter feeds mm-hmm. something that, that you're getting in our instagram lives of like hey these people are going up and down our streets and that does freak everybody out especially in small neighborhoods um it's because they're worried, like even Indiana, for some reason, they're like, well, they could do this neighborhood. It's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. What would uh, happen? They, what would happen if that couple in St. Louis had gone out and had a conversation with the people that were walking through their neighborhood? Do you think that do you think that they would have been murdered or or do you think that they probably would have had a nice conversation with somebody? Did they, did they need to really run out with guns? Say murder. You, you, you say murder? <laughs> I said I say murdered. Judging what has happened in Oregon, I say murdered. Okay. Um, one they, side, they both group because they can want to have a conversation, but if the other side does not want to talk, they will not talk. Right, but that blood. group was was just walking to protest at the mayor's office. There was no violence or anything that they were doing. Oh, the the video of what they were doing, they were just chanting about mm-hmm. um, uh, the woman who was shot in her bed. I mean, that's that's all they were doing. They weren't saying anything. They had people with cameras recording the whole thing mm-hmm. so i don't think there would have been any fight with these people they came out a lot of people don't know this about the couple in st louis is that this isn't the first time they pulled guns on people walking in that neighborhood they're trying to take ownership through legal means um through a, a process known as we uh, i can't remember the name of the legal tenant for it but basically if you take care of a property long enough or protect a property long enough and show that you've been doing so, then the then the ownership of that property can get ceded to you. Homesteading, and that's what they're trying to do with that property mm-hmm. against the will of the homeowners association, who doesn't see it the same way they did. Right, so they've been having a fight with this. So they've pulled guns on people going through that neighborhood before. Yeah. Um. So this isn't 
I don't think this has anything to do with the, the riot stuff. I think it was just them trying to make a show and they didn't realize they were going to get caught on camera quite like they did. No, I Maybe. think the, 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 the reality is you're right here. Like the property destruction, the occupation of blocks in Seattle, like this mm-hmm. stuff is decidedly wrong. Um, I, there is, there is a point where each of us individually has to make a choice to, buy into all of this or choose to help get the country out of it. You know, that's my point is that not everybody who is on the left is an Antifa supporter, but that on the right is how it's often painted. Not everybody who is on the right is a bloodthirsty Trump supporter that each side is just viewing this as I need to vote this way out of political protection. Mm -hmm. You, You know, the, and this is where like Dave and I, Dave Smith and I have like a lot of common agreement. The state is the reason that the culture wars exist. You know, there would be tension, but in reality, in a, in a world where there isn't the state, the state, meaning the a government, the government of some level, what it does is it takes two competing interest groups and they wrestle for the ability to force the other to live the way that one competing interest wants them to live, or else they go to jail or are killed ultimately. Government at its root is force. And so people, because the government, we have ceded so much power, so much control over so many different areas of society, people feel that if I don't elect the right president, I'm going to die, which if you really understand, then this is a brilliant move by the two-party system, or as Murray Rothbard called it, the cult of the omnipotent state, meaning both parties are just armed thugs trying to fight each other, and we're all caught in the middle. Um, the, the, the reality is that if you un- the, 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 robbing people of civics education and taking away people's understanding of how their government truly functions has made this all much worse because all of a sudden you think that if you don't elect the right president, you're going to die, when in reality, who is president matters very little in terms of your day-to-day. You're, if, as you, if you can, can't tell, like the governor and the mayor of your town is much more impactful on your day-to-day life, your city council even more so, and yet you will spend hours arguing on Facebook about the presidency and say you don't have time to go to a town council meeting for an hour. Well, stop arguing about the cult of the presidency and what doesn't matter and go get engaged in something that does, that does directly affect you. That's the way I see it. I look at it and go, having been around politics, local politics and government and media for 20 years, when you get involved in your local politics, you're less scared of it. When you talk to a Nazi, you're less scared of it. If you're Antifa, if you have a conversation with a Trump report, uh, supporter, you're less scared of each other. Like, and, and we're not focusing on that as a value. We're focusing on we need to win the culture war to beat up on the other guy. And I just think that's a strategic mistake for libertarians. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, it is, it's that voting for protection thing. That's what's really, uh, what you said, like this speaks, like it speaks volumes of what a lot of people are doing, especially in, 
in those areas that are impacted by the riots. That's what's going to see different things because they're they're going to try to vote. You know, they're voting for protection and or or because if you if this one side allows this thing that happens, they're going to try to run run to the exact opposite. Probably yeah. not thinking correctly. It's uh, perfectly normal for people to say this is not an appropriate way to act in society. Right. Uh, Indiana here is being affected with our local governors and mayors. Uh, a lot of the time when I go into Indianapolis and talk to people at work about like how different things going on and they're just shocked, completely shocked that um, Gunther's daycare and preschools like has been open, never shut down. No, they do not wear masks. I'm like, well, it's like, it's a small town. The mayor said, F this, do what you want. Right. Leave alone. Okay. Ain't got time for this. Um, you know, make your own decisions. And just like, yeah. Because I decided to go to a small town that did that. Um, the other thing, I think I posted a video in the Discord channel of uh, Lewis Rossman, Lewis Rossman Group, uh, great, amazing YouTuber, Twitch streamer who fixes Apple computer, um, products. If you ever want to buy an Apple product, look up a Lewis Rossman video on how hard it is to fix a thing before you decide buying that product um, and how much he charges. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Lewis Rossman did a great, I think an hour long video of him just riding around on his bicycle around New York City uh, because of things have been clamped down and shut down and watching all these big shops still boarded up in New York City and getting and or leaving, not paying rent. So these are corner stores of high rise, expensive areas and just showing like this is the real New York City that, you know, and I don't uh, I still believe that New York City will bounce back once everything else open because Lewis is still there. But if Lewis packs up and leaves, if he thinks he can't make it money there, no one can. No one can. He'll get out. Yeah. Get out. Well, I mean, but economics is at the heart of all this. Yes. You know, it, it's not the not necessarily just the cultural forces. I know we, we often, and it is true that culture predates politics, but that's in examples of things like gay marriage. You know, once politicians are spineless weasels. So once something like once the NCAA says we're shutting down for our financial interests, the government goes, oh, we have permission to do that because the winds have changed. You know, Barack Obama running on civil marriages, uh, civil unions instead of gay marriage in 2008. And then the winds changed and he changed. You know, it's Mm -hmm. that's the example of culture changing politics in this instance. It's economics are informing the culture. And because you have uh, – there's this great talk by Mark Blythe, B-L-Y-T-H-E, where he talks about the causes of you know, a lot of this unrest, and it is all inflation. It's the libertarian message, which is once you inflate the currency and the cost of living goes up but wages stay stagnant, what do you think is going to happen? People are going to get – upset they're going to get mad they don't know enough they're not sophisticated enough to direct their anger they see other people who are are, you know perceived to have benefits that they don't have because of varying factors and so everybody starts to riot or gets mad or whatever and it all comes back to the government Mm -hmm. being a vampire basically you know sucking out economic opportunity i'm going to give the last word on this before we move on to trump's record to to reinhold Okay, well, I want to go back on that a little bit because I don't, I don't think it's all economic related. I think there are people out there with legitimate gripes against the way that the government has been treating them for the past however many hundreds of years, or especially the last you know couple decades. But you know, the, I think a lot of the problem is that just people aren't listening to those 
experiences and those concerns that they have, those, those, are, you know, those things that they are concerned about, they're upset about. And to the point where they're denying that it's even happening, there isn't even a thing like Dave Rubin tries to say, there's no such thing as institutional, institutional racism. Well, there is, um, you know, and, and you go, he goes on to explain institutional racism almost perfectly and then tries to say it's social economic. And it's like, well, why are the, why is one group so socially economically poor is because of the way the government has acted over the past several decades. And it's like, you're making the point that these people are trying to make. You just don't want to say that it's racially motivated when the, the clear data shows that it is. So, um, so let, let's let's let people have that conversation, but people are getting so frustrated that they're willing to go against the social norms of not um, not writing in order to try to get their point across because they're so mad and, and upset and frustrated about it, right? So mm-hmm. instead of trying to find out why they're upset and, and maybe work a solution out that will uh, alleviate the, the tensions, people want to build on those tensions for political gain. And now mm-hmm. we have people trying to fight with each other politically um, just so they can gain more power about how they're going to control what everybody else does. And it's, it's an endless cycle that we're just not getting ourselves out of because nobody wants to listen anymore. Nobody wants to lay down their pride. That's, that's part of the problem. And I will tell you part of what's happened to my evolution over the last couple years, year or two run headlong into uncomfortable conversations you know, it was not comfortable and it was nerve wracking to go on Dave Smith, for instance. It's nerve wracking to have racial conversations on the pat down. Like my life has been so rewarded by instead of avoiding those uncomfortable conversations, running headlong into them. And, it, you know, it takes some some courage to do that stuff where you put yourself in a vulnerable spot. But it's worth it. It really does enrich your life and, and make things better. Um, I will tell you my perception of Trump. I thought, uh, you know, obviously there's uh, several hundred episodes outlining a lot of this, but uh, I've always thought Donald Trump was a grotesque human being. Uh, I thought that he was a disgusting, principleless human being. Uh, he is a politician. For those of you who don't understand, Donald Trump is a politician who is trying to manipulate you. And if you hate the state, you hate government. Donald Trump is the government. He's the president. Um, so those are two principles that you always have to keep in mind. He he is a politician that lies. He's a bullshit artist, uh, which is why he is so contradictory so often. He's just the problem with a bullshit artist is that they have to keep the world small and controlled because if the bullshit gets too far and too many people look at it, everybody starts talking to each other and goes, that guy's just bullshitting us. Uh, And so they want to keep everything kind of controlled and small. And so Donald Trump really doesn't believe anything other than Donald Trump is awesome. And how does this benefit Donald Trump? I think even his relationships with his children are transactional. I've said this in the past. I know I have. Um, Donald, you know, the argument, uh, Donald Trump can't be that bad of a person. Look at the children he raised. Look at the relationship they have. He must be a good person because of the kids. 
That doesn't hold true four years later. I think even his relationship with his kids are transactional. Obviously, Melania renegotiating her prenup before she moved to the White House shows that that marriage is transactional. So I just think the man is a a bit of a sociopathic narcissist and, uh, well, maybe not a bit. Um, you know, and listen, like, okay, but I, I, not to do the whataboutism, but you're, you know, you have to have some sociopathic narcissism to want to be president and demand all 370 million people do what you say. Um, but I think he's taken it to astronomical levels because he has no real ideology and because he has no real principles. Um, and so that's where like, yes. Oh, but all presidents cheat, all presidents lie, all presidents do that. It's the don't take one pill or don't take the whole bottle, just take one red pill argument. There's degrees of it. And and Donald Trump, it's not a, a binary choice between uh, all presidents did it and Donald Trump can get away with it. It's that he just does so much of it and so often. And how many different – it's like the post office thing. Like, okay, well, there are other arguments on one side and then there are arguments on this side and, you know, it looks fishy that he goes on Fox and Friends and says that the post office is this and then appoints a new postmaster and then they start – doing this and then these things happen but it was in the strategic plan and so you could watch you have to step out and go how many a week of these where we're trying to give him the benefit of the doubt do you have to have before you just call it like it is how many weeks in a row over a five-year period do you have to go this guy is everything that somebody like reinhold says he is and so then you have to face the choice of do i want to vote for somebody who is a sociopathic narcissist, right? Can I live with that choice? And that's so many people are willing to do that because of Trump's record. And I think once you look at it and see what he has and has not done, you may or may not change your mind. Um, But all that being said, I thought, all right, the guy, because he has no real principles and is transactional as a person, could turn out to be a centrist president. Greg always made this argument on the show. He could be a centrist deal-making. He was a Democrat until three years before he was president. Uh, you know, he if he had walked in... Now, I'm not arguing for this. I'm saying, like, in terms of how the press would view Donald Trump and how they would treat Donald Trump, if he had walked in day one and said, you know, the first thing we're going to do is work on an infrastructure bill, and I'm going to look at my partners in the other aisle, and we're going to do this, and... He he could be he could be further ahead, but so often with Donald Trump, he puts his own personal interest ahead of everyone else, including his often him his own future interests ahead of everything else. And the first thing he does is lie about his crowd size at the inauguration, you know. And then and then it just becomes a pride. It becomes a headbutting. And I agree with you, Harry, that he never got a fair deal. That's, uh, in my view, what a lot of the Russia, and I know Reinhold disagrees, but I feel that a lot of the Russia stuff was an unfair, uh, it was very conspiratorial. And where I've come down on the Russia stuff is that things like the, uh, things like Russia hacking us, that is all absolutely true. Like there's there's concrete evidence for that actually taking place and, you know, stuff like WikiLeaks and then the Podesta leaks, like all that stuff actually happened because Russia wanted to meddle in the election. 
Donald Trump's campaign was not smart enough to participate in it. And again, it goes back to how many kind of times are we giving the benefit of the doubt to the Mueller people before you kind of go, just leave. What do you like? They, the campaign was incompetent. Um, whenever one of us says anything that is even remotely pro Trump, Harry, Reinhold gets so uncomfortable on the video. It's so mm-hmm. funny. You'll have to rewatch if you're yeah. watching the video because he just <laughs> wants to great. say something, but he, he can't. Um, so I want, I just want to note that Dennis disagrees, uh, but for the sake of time, we won't, uh, you know, we won't mention it. Um, we won't go into the long diatribe about how the reports just came out showing that a lot of what you just said is not true, but okay. Okay. Well, there's a <laughs> thousand pages that people can read from the Senate intelligent report that the Republicans did put it out. And Hey, I may be buying into the bullshit from the right on some of this stuff. You know, it's it's possible. Um, where where I stopped giving Trump the benefit of the doubt was coronavirus. He doesn't read his daily briefings. He missed the coronavirus. He, he The people that he appointed to run HHS, the FDA, the CDC, completely failed. Uh, and we would not have the shutdowns. We would not have the economic destruction that we have you could have done the Sweden plan, for instance, had the the Trump CDC and the Trump FDA and Trump himself not been so incompetent. And you have to at some point start laying the blame for some things on the coronavirus response at the feet of the president. Sure, he got the ventilators out to the people who needed them, but we didn't need the ventilators we needed. We needed the testing. And now because cases go up as testing goes up, he's going, I don't know why anybody really needs a test. And you just go, what is wrong with you? Uh, you know, he well, the, sometimes get the, the main test. knock on him was that he wanted to have American made tests. So he made the CDC instead of using one that was already made by Germany. Right. He, he made the CDC generate their own, which took weeks. Then they implemented them, found out that they were wrong. They were given uh, 50% failure rates on testing, had to go back and redo them. So we were like six weeks behind just because of that in testing. Right. Right. So people try to say, well, what did Trump not do? And you know, all this stuff. I'm like, well, that's the big key right there. If we'd have had good testing right up front, Mm -hmm. we could have got ahead of it and kept some things open, but because we didn't have good testing, we're trying to go off of temperatures and asking if somebody has been sick. I mean, that's not going to work. It's not going to lay lay people's fears. And that was the biggest deal was laying people's fears enough that they would continue to go out in public um, knowing that people who were enough people were getting tested that they could have a good confidence level that the people around them were not going to have it. Yeah. And so you go look up the lost month by the New York times as they detail in, in exquisite detail uh, as to how the Trump administration failed. So, uh, you know, and then the response to the, the BLM and this argument, his only real reelection premise is, if you don't elect me, they're going to take over and you need me to fight the left. Well, dude, you're the president. And so you have all the levers of government at your disposal, supposedly, and you haven't you haven't succeeded. So even your premise for reelection, the record you're not running on, all this stuff just doesn't make any sense. And I, I just find like the MAGA crowd to be intellectually inconsistent and full of bullshit because they just believe his bullshit. Um, before we look in further, our, our buddy Darla is back, and I want to address Trump derangement syndrome. Reinhold has a touch of Trump derangement syndrome. Um, 
All right. So I, make I, sure I, we bring up the wall, the walnuts episodes where I was defending Trump for two and a half years. Right. Right. And right. same, same here. Like at a certain point, you you go. All right. The evidence is so overwhelming that this person is all these things that you you can't you can't continue it. And, and it becomes a bit of Trump derangement syndrome in and of itself when you constantly make excuses and buy into the bullshit excuses for why Donald Trump is not every like, you know, Darla, who we love listening because you've added some great perspective the last couple episodes for us to, to have a conversation with our, our commenters as we do this live on Saturday mornings. The post office thing is not a big deal. Corporate press and Democrats, same thing, are delusional conspiracy theorists. You know, the Russiagate is a conspiracy theory. Like, how many conspiracy theories are there? Nine like, million sure at this point? Like, not, I mean, just around Trump. Like, you have to continually say, this guy has never done anything wrong. It's just the deep state. Like, that to me is a bit of Trump derangement syndrome when you're not willing to look at facts on on all this stuff and go, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Or, mm, yeah, Donald Trump, like, the idea that we're just constantly absolving Donald Trump of every wrongdoing because it's the press's fault or it's a conspiracy theory or the deep state is doing it is just not reality. It's delusional. And so Trump derangement syndrome, in my mind, is really people going, I know you. I know you're a decent Republican. I know you're a Christian conservative who loves Mike Pence. Like, I look at some of my Republican friends that work for Mike Pence who are decent men decent human beings and they're defending the most immoral gross politician who is sleeping with a, a porn star uh, uh like while his wife is pregnant with his child and going allegedly we need to we need to uh elect this man because the left is more immoral and i just go at some point i don't know what values you actually hold like is your value power or is your value the Christian conservatism that you've been telling me for years join the Republican Party because the party of Reagan at its core is libertarian? And I don't think that's true anymore. I think your true value is that you want to hold power. And so there's a segment of the libertarian movement that will make an excuse for Donald Trump for anything and then in the same breath go, well, they're all corrupt. The duopoly needs to come to an end. It's like then why are you helping prop up the duopoly? Donald Trump is not an outside politician who is fighting the deep state. Donald Trump is just a, co a corrupt bullshitter. And you buying into every piece of bullshit because you hate the media, like, there are problems with the press. They are completely sold out to the left. He has completely exposed that. But which of us libertarians hasn't said that the state and the press are the same thing forever? It's just that like now there's this other side and well, well they're like the conservative press is sold out to the state too but we buy all their bullshit on the on the right instead of questioning it so never questioning donald trump or never questioning joe biden or never questioning the team that you used to vote for to me is just sort of insane am i wrong no and, and the same commenter who mentioned the tds also stated that Trump was the most anti-war president in their history. And I'm like, how, how do you go from bombing more people than Obama did to uh, most anti-war? I don't understand how you get there. 
Yeah, and so we'll talk about some of that, the anti-war stuff later. Um, and Darla, yep, love talking to Dave Smith. I mentioned it earlier in the show, so um, rewind if you missed that, that setup there um, later on. Uh, so that's my view on Trump derangement syndrome, because I, I, I always joked with Reinhold half seriously about him having Trump derangement syndrome. It's just that he figured out all this out quicker than I did. And I think that's a big part of it is once you get out of your bubble and you start taking other people seriously, you go, maybe everybody kind of has a point. It's just the solutions that are wrong. Like if if every person of color that, you know, tells you that they have the same experience with police Maybe that should be listened to as much as the statistics that come out of the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> you know, like, like take or Candace all, Owens. Yeah, or Candace Owens. Like, take all this information in, and just because it is, ooh, edgy and dangerous and counterfactual, like, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily correct. Like, look at all this stuff. Evaluate all of it. Uh, let's start talking about Donald Trump's record and uh, what he promised on in his 2016 campaign uh again i apologize if uh, there's a lot of reading i will try not to sound like i'm reading uh but the show notes prepared by sam were great and you can find these at we are libertarians.com in the uh the show notes uh, section there's a pdf that you can download and refer back when you're talking with your friends about biden kamala and uh trump Probably won't get into Pence because he's a known quantity. We've done shows on Mike Pence before. You can go back and and look for those. Um, So campaign promises and what he ran on. In a 2015 speech declaring his run for the presidency, Trump proclaimed, we are going to make the country great again. And that is the fundamental premise of the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, He said, sadly, the American dream is dead. But if I get elected president, I will bring it back bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. Uh, he said, our country needs a truly great leader. And we need a truly great leader now. We need a leader that wrote the art of the deal. We need a leader that can bring back our jobs. Can bring back our manufacturing. Can bring back our military. And take care of our vets. So those were the fundamental premises that Donald Trump ran on. And according to Donald Trump. Uh, he was going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Trump announced his candidacy with the promise to build a wall on a southern border. I would build a great wall. And nobody builds walls better than me. Believe me. And I'll build it. I'll build them very inexpensively. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border. And I will have Mexico pay for that wall. (laughs) When you hear hear some of this stuff back, you just go, I remember him saying that and laughing. Because, like, back then I thought he was funny. I don't think he's as funny anymore. He's As he has become more petty and, like, a gourd bull fighting for his existence, he has become far less entertaining. Um, When he has the power of the state, you know, it's not funny anymore when you have that much power and you can actually do stuff. It's it's not funny. Uh, He would temporarily ban Muslims from entering the United States. Following the December 2015 shooting in San Bernardino, Trump called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. Uh, In May of 2016, Trump told the New York Times the ban would be in place by the end of his first 100 days. Uh, He said he would bring back manufacturing. Trump said he would revitalize manufacturing in various iterations. 
quote, I'm going to withdraw from the United States from the trans Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I'm going to tell our NAFTA partners I intend to immediately renegotiate the terms of that agreement and get a better deal for our workers. I will use every law, presidential power, every lawful presidential power to remedy trade disputes, including the application of tariffs. Impose tariffs on goods made in China and Mexico. Renegotiate or withdraw from NAFTA and the TPP. A full repeal of Obamacare was promised, and he would replace it with a market-based system. I would do things very quickly, and I would repeal and replace the big lie, Obamacare. He wanted to fully repeal Obamacare and replace it with health savings accounts, the ability to purchase health insurance across state lines, and let states manage Medicaid funds. Uh, He wanted to renegotiate the Iran nuclear deal. I will stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Cut taxes, both income and corporate. An economic plan designed to grow the economy 4% per year and create at least 25 million new jobs through massive tax cut reductions and simplification. Remember the postcard? He was going to put your taxes on a postcard. In combination with trade reform, regulatory relief, and lifting restrictions on American energy. The largest tax reductions are for the middle class, he said. A middle-class family with two children would get a 35% tax cut. The current number of brackets will be reduced from seven to three. That's, one of, that's what he promised early on in his campaign, and he was going to lower the business rate, the corporate tax rate, from 35 to 15%. He was also going to defeat ISIS. Now, he released something called the Contract with the American Voter. On October 22, 2016, he issued what he called his contract with the American voter. It was a specific plan of action that would guide his administration starting from the first day, and he listed 60 promises in it. Now, in our show notes in this PDF, you can go read the whole document. It's there. We're just going to highlight some of these pieces. And uh, start uh let's so we'll we'll pick apart his record once we get to the first 100 days but i just want to give you an idea of what donald trump promised um six measures to clean up the corruption and special interest collusion in washington dc uh propose a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all members of congress a hiring freeze on all federal employees to reduce the federal workforce through attrition exempting the military public safety and public health a requirement that for every new federal regulation, two existing regulations must be eliminated. A five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service. A complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American elections. And seven actions to protect the American worker. I will announce my intentions to renegotiate NAFTA or withdraw from the deal. I will announce our withdrawals from the TPP, and I will direct the Secretary of the Treasury to label China a currency manipulator. Now, he also had five actions to restore security in the constitutional rule of law. Cancel every unconstitutional executive action memorandum and order issued by Obama. Cancel all federal funding to sanctuary cities and begin removing the more than 2 million criminal immigrants from the country and cancel visas to foreign countries that won't take them back. Uh, And again, to go in depth. uh, Now, you guys, that there's a lot in there that 
libertarians like, like cutting taxes. Uh, a lot of libertarians are for term limits, uh, obviously restoring constitutional order. A lot of that stuff sounds really good. So why do you guys, why did you hate Donald Trump? I'm just kidding, <laughs> Ryan. I mean, is that partly why you were so, um, uh, like for me, you hear that stuff, you hear that rhetoric and you go, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm for all that stuff, Reinhold. Uh, some of it, yeah. Um, a lot of it. If that's had been something, I mean, like the the Muslim ban, I'm not a big fan of, obviously, or some of the other things he was talking about in there. But as far as the, you know, the regulations and the term limits and the uh, the tax cuts, as long as you're cutting spending at the same time, then those are things that we could look at and, and see some sort of win with as a as a libertarian to say, at least we're getting some of our uh, concerns taken care of. It's just that uh, none of that ever really happened. Yeah. Right? <laughs> As we will get to, Harry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, and the, some, but the, a lot of the things he didn't happen is either because he was either blocked by doing it or said he couldn't do it or he, re, he found out really quickly that when he learned what the job of the president was that he didn't have the ability to do that. Well, he's completely, and it goes back to my point about civic education. He's completely unaware of how the government he op, he controls operates, mm -hmm. you know. And that's a big part of when you buy into the populism and you you make declarative statements based on what you think ought to be right. Um, it is often, or or if you're a pure ideologue, that is often met with the buzzsaw of. Uh, cooperation and collaboration that is required in Congress or required in any government body. You know, that's it's Dave said that to me on, on our interviews. Like, you know, I didn't get criticized by libertarians until I joined the Libertarian Party. Well, yeah, once you enter into direct action politics, you now have to cooperate with other people. And they have different views and different opinions, and there's different coalitions, and there's a 40-year history of activism, and many of those people are still there. Like, they're, they're, you have to give and take. And so, you know, Trump going in is not willing to listen to any other perspectives. He is not willing to uh, negotiate. You know, and you'd think that the great deal maker would have been more apt to to have some of those conversations, but I think he thinks that he can just this is a problem with a lot of narcissists, he thinks he can just win through brute force and his Twitter account and and harassing the other side and making fun of them and like sure that's that that works for a while, but eventually people start shedding off of that because they're exhausted. And he is he is he is exhausting the Republican Party, and he wears them down. He wears everybody down. But the, 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 I mean, the idea that he's he's diminished the left as president, and we need four more years of this. We've gone from Bernie Sanders being an also ran against Hillary Clinton to being the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, to Antifa being a weird group that threw milkshakes at Richard Spencer, to being something that is occupying cities like. He ain't the great fighter of the left, you know. It's it, this. This ain't it. This ain't it, dude. Uh, so well, he came thoughts? in with he came in with no political capital, right? He, and he came in thinking he was going to throw his weight around, and he and he also came in with a Republican Congress and a Republican Senate. So he had full reign as a party, if he had played party politics, as it were, to to get all of this stuff done because this is what the people who were in those positions wanted, they wanted to end Obamacare. They wanted 
the you know a, a lot of the stuff that he was pushing for right so the fact that he couldn't get that done makes me wonder what's he going to do you know now that he doesn't have you know so, when he so has later he doesn't have that anymore yeah. he doesn't even have the power that he had what's he going to have next time because it looks like they may be losing the senate now because of him which is insane I mean, when yeah. I remember the 2018 after like, yeah, but they're probably going to keep the Senate next time. They got 23 seats up. It's in all these favorable states like they were going to keep the Senate by two or three or four seats uh, as predicted at, after the last blue wave. And they're going to lose all of it. The only one they are going to win is in Alabama. And that's a toss up. in yeah, freaking that Alabama. still amazes me because Doug Jones is such a, a hero to so many people on the left down there that I cannot believe that that turnout isn't still going to be higher than what, you know, he may win yeah. like Trump won with he, just the he, turnout. He put the people who did the Birmingham uh, church bombing in jail. So that's why he's a hero. Um, so very loved, but you're exactly, you're exactly right, him. Harry. The, the reality of politics is compromise. Right. It, and it's any, Unwilling to that, unwilling to work with them, uh, especially even with the uh, Republicans. That's the other reason the problem is uh, Rhino was talking about is playing poly, uh, party politics. He wanted to do it his way those two years. So he had the two years ability to do what he wanted and he didn't want to play ball with them. He wanted to do it his way, which they quickly realized, which I'm sure a lot of the Republicans realized that they just elected a Democrat as the Republican president. Um, the other thing with, I don't also... Trump also had the issue of just trying to get his people in place, of just trying to get um, his people in uh, positions of power um, that he wanted to just to he, he got hit with roadblock after roadblock after roadblock of just trying to get his people in and Obama people's out during the transition process. Um, regard uh, a lot of it is the Obama era people were not uh, were very hesitant of the, of the uh, to the transition team and. That is also another reason why his 100 days was also kind of sabotaged. So it's, I'm not, it sounds like I'm giving, I'm, I'm not trying to like make, I'm not making excuses for the guy. It's just more of a, this is also kind of what happened. Uh, if he does win re-election, there's a lot of that he doesn't have to do again, but he's still going to, but not having the Senate, not having Congress, it's, it's going to be the almost some like the second half of Obama's presidency when the, you know, it was just a bunch of stalemates and just the party of no. And it's this right now. That's what's to me. It feels like this very weird aspect of the Republican party is just how the Democrats were. Uh, was it a 2000 and was it, yeah. 2012, 13, 12. Yeah. 14. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, they, it's slightly different, um, but it's, they're in this massive lull, uh, and it's I gotta put it. It's the word I'm looking for. It's what I'm mostly worried is because the way Obama governed that second half, since he couldn't get anything in Congress, was all through just the power of the pen and he, signing and, ridiculous executive orders. And, and didn't he recently that say that if, uh, or it was leaked somewhere that? Trump said that in his second term, it would be all the pen and the phone, and he was going to do a lot of, he was going to, the, the, the thing about a president's second term is it's always the B and C team, because you, you come in with your A team, right. you know, you come in with your best people, and then just the, the nature of presidential politics is it wears people out and they drop off. Trump mm -hmm. is like, at the end of his first term with like his 
E and F team. So God only knows who is going to be at the end of this. The, read Michael Lewis's fifth risk about the way that Donald Trump didn't staff the federal government with his people in the beginning. And through attrition and retirements and, and a lack of recruitment, Trump has never replaced those people. And what happens at the end of that second term is even more vacancies. I think like 25% of the federal government was never filled by Trump. You know, let's say it's 30%, 40% at the end of the second term, and you elect a Democratic president. Instead of 25%, you now have 40% for Barack Obama or, or, or Joe Biden, same difference, to fill out their people, right? So yeah. you actually don't end up winning control of the bureaucracy with Donald Trump if he gets reelected. You're going to lose it. And that's another one of those inconsistencies in terms of Donald Trump because he's an, a dysfunctional person who doesn't know the bureaucracy he's trying to manage. That's one of those unintended consequences of electing Trump is that the bureaucracy is going to become more liberal, more progressive, because it will be filled with more progressives. Like, and, and, and libertarians will often, and this was just with the post office stuff, libertarians will often go, well, I think it's good that the post office is being destroyed. I think it's good that this is being done this way. I think it's, it's not good because it, it, if elimination is your goal, if if abolition of these various programs is your goal, it needs to be done in a systematic way to avoid disturbances, backlash. right? Like right, yeah, and back service. and backlash. It, you know, right. like libertarian chief Todd Hagopian tweeted out, like, "Hey, my son's medication is now late, and his life is at risk because of the the cuts at the post office." Right. That's a totally avoidable human cost mm -hmm. if there is a plan to transition this stuff right yeah. like and and convince people that's part of democracy that's part of a republic that's part of any governmental system that was my argument with the confederate statues don't just go tear it down the reason we have a representative democracy is that there's no there's less backlash and less resentment and less consequences on the other side if everybody feels that their voice is heard through the representative democratic democratic process and when you just do things willy-nilly and tear them down because it feels good, whether it's the post office or Confederate statues, it builds resentment. And then when the other guy gets in power, they act on that resentment instead of having the conversation and the, the way that the system is supposed to work. And so go ahead, Harry. Uh, uh, yeah, the one thing, because you know, you're right, phasing out the post office is something that you can do. If you just open, allow the other shipping companies or – other shipping companies to be able to do what the post office does and then also allowing post office to charge a fair rate yep. and they have already stated like you know we can't ship saturday to sundays with these rate without without a rate hike you know and with amazon doing their own shipping that which amazon is doing at a loss they are losing money doing their own shipping but they're able to afford that and but they're taking money out of the usps because it's not being shipped through usps it's being shipped to their own people it's so that's another thing that's another uh so but doing things like that that's how you naturally uh, you allow companies to do that that's how you naturally get rid of the post office or just like make it so the post office just does government mail and you allow everything else like that this is just the mail thing that that the government uses to ship out government necessary mail and you let everything else do it yeah the mail the, there's a monopoly on the mail by a diktat of congress it's, it mm -hmm. says in the con constitution that 
you can have a mail service, a post office. You don't need one. Um, you must not. Uh, must not have one. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they could also, in 2006, they passed a rule where they had to contribute massive amounts of money to a pension fund. You take that, you have Congress remove that right now. The Democrats could solve that problem. They could pass that bill in the House right now. The Democrat, the Republicans would probably pass it in the Senate. The, you know, Trump probably wouldn't sign it, but if he doesn't sign it, you could probably get two-thirds based on outrage. You could right. fund the post office right now by removing that. Right. Uh, so, but those are some of those bills that uh, the deep, the the Enron is still affecting our economics today. Till this day, those those are bills from the Enron upset. The Enron upset. So, yes, Enron. Well, it's it's like I always said too. I said if you want to get rid of the deep state, Trump was the worst person in the world to to achieve that. Even if that was actually one of his goals, which I don't think it really was. Um, other than the fact he just wanted everybody to be loyal to him, not to necessarily to the country, right? So he wanted a loyalty test for everybody who worked for him. But um, the problem is, is that you get somebody like Trump in there who is doing corrupt things and doing all these things that starts to scare people. They're going to be more apt to say, we need those swamp people in there to keep the government protected from itself, right? To, to have somebody in there as a blocker to some of the more egregious things that he's trying to do. You end up making the case for keeping the swamp with somebody like him. Now, if you had somebody who went in there and played by all the rules and was squeaky clean and, and worked to actually dismantle that environment, there's no backlash because they're doing it the right way. He's doing it the wrong way, right? Yeah, Political science is called political science because there are predictable rules. And just because you don't like the rules or the predictable trade-offs that come with government, you can't just deny that those exist and say, this is how it ought to be. I've decreed it. There are rules to bureaucracy, which is why you want less of it. Because if people are trading and cooperating through private means and choosing who they're working with, even down to choosing what police departments to work with. Well, this police department seems a little racist and that doesn't reflect our values. So let's hire this other policing company. It it, it then reduces the resentment because in a private policing situation, now all of a sudden you have choices. You can take your anger out on those people by firing them instead of spending 40 years marching in the streets screaming, this police department is racist and I don't like them. And they look at you and go, we're going to take your money by force. And if you protest too hard, we're going to lock you up. And you know what you can do about your criticisms? You can eat a dick. Because that's what government ultimately says is eat a dick. Libertarians are the only people that want to leave you alone. If you give libertarians power, we're going to leave you alone. The other two sides are not for that. They don't they're not offering that. So let's let's talk about the first 100 days and this is when we start to get into the record where the rubber meets the road as one of you pointed out. Donald Trump had the Senate, he had the House, he had a great ability to achieve a lot, a lot better ability than he did after 2018 with a, a Democratic House and, and a much better opportunity than when he doesn't have the Senate potentially uh, in a second term. And uh, so here's what he promised and here's what actually happened. The hiring freeze on all federal employees. Uh, 
One of Donald Trump's first actions on the Monday after taking office was to order a federal hiring freeze, excluding federal jobs deemed necessary to meet national security or public safety responsibilities. Perfect. We don't need more bureaucrats. Put a, put a hold on that. Uh, later that month, the administration released further details about which jobs were exempt, expanding it to seasonal workers and the entire USPS. The hiring freeze lasted roughly two months before Trump revoked it altogether on April 12th, 2017. Cutting regulations. On January 30th, 2017, Trump signed an executive order that merely called on agencies to identify two rules they think they could, that could be eliminated. So he said, think about it. Let me know what regulations you can cut. Now, some people took the opportunity because they had the, the political cover, but it was never a mandate. Um, the five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists. On January 28, 2017, Trump signed an executive order on ethics that included a five-year ban on former White House officials lobbying the government. It didn't include congressional staff. It was just the executive branch, the White House specifically. However, there were only pre- they were only prevented from lobbying the agency they worked for. So if you're a well-connected person that worked for the Energy Department, you could not lobby the Energy Department, but you could go lobby the Agricultural Department. Um, Trump also watered down a requirement from the Obama administration that all former officials wait at least two years before contacting their former agencies because he reduced it to one. Uh, <laughs> right, once you get into all this stuff, you go, <laughs> all the bullshit sounds so good. But then when you look at what he actually did, you're like, ooh, a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Eight days after his inauguration, Trump signed an executive order requiring White House officials to sign an ethics pledge as a condition of employment. One of the nine different ethical commitments included, quote, I will not at any time after the termination of my employment in the United States government engage in any activity on behalf of any foreign government or foreign political party, which were undertaken on January 20th, 2017, would require me to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938 as amended. However, the order includes a clause allowing the, quote, president or his designee to grant waivers to anyone who has signed the pledge. So the well-connected to the Trump administration ended up getting waivers. Um, Withdrawal from the TPP. Three days into his presidency, Trump signed an executive order directing an end to negotiations over the trade deal. There is no however on that one. Labeled China a a currency manipulator. On day 83 of his presidency, Trump declared in an interview with the Wall Street Journal that his Treasury Department would not be declaring China a currency manipulator at all. Trump then applied the label to China in a tweet on August 5th, 2019, in a subsequent Treasury Department statement, Steve Mnuchin, and said Chinese authorities who have, quote, ample control over the country's money supply have openly acknowledged their central bank's ability to manipulate Chinese currency. In January 2020, at a sensitive point in trade negotiations with China, the Trump administration rescinded that label and said that tweet that isn't government law or a government force uh, doesn't apply anymore. 
Cancel billions in payments to the U.N. climate change programs. On June 1st, 2017, Donald Trump announced that the U.S. would cease all participation in the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change Mitigation. Following Trump's announcement, the governors of several U.S. states formed the United States Climate Alliance to continue to advance the objectives of the Paris Agreement at the state level. As of July 2019, 24 states and Puerto Rico have joined the alliance. Look at that. Federalism at work. Who'd have thunk? Uh, Next, cancel all federal funding to sanctuary cities. Mere days before the 100-day mark, the Trump administration suffered a defeat on this when a federal judge in the Northern District of California blocked the Trump administration from doing anything to deny funds to cities and counties based on whether they counted as sanctuaries. Since then, courts across the country have held back. Trump's attempts to withhold federal funding for states and local jurisdictions that limit their cooperation with federal immigration authorities. There is no federalism at work. Yes, there is no f- official definition or list of sanctuary cities, and some cities have pushed back on that label, meaning the president willy-nilly can declare any city he doesn't like or mayor who's mean to him as a quote sanctuary city and begin the process. So it's by diktat, it's not rule of law, it's rule of man. Therefore, we fully reject that. This U.S. Supreme Court in June refused a request from Trump uh, to review a case challenging a California law that restricts police cooperation with federal immigration authorities. Let me pause there. Is there anything in that stuff that that jumps out to you? What the stopping the, the the local cops working for the federal police? Anything that I've read, uh, I just wanted to drink. <laughs> I, yeah, that one was like, was like scary BS because that's a lot of the things of how a lot of the states are stopping or doing decrim for marijuana prosecution is because, nope, you, it's like, nope, we're just not going to do it on the state level and you can't use our local police to go after marijuana people. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Bring your own, bring your own federal officers for your own money. Reinhold? No, that's the way I think it should be. And um, the sanctuary city stuff, again, I think you nailed it with the fact that he's just declaring who he doesn't like to be, to be a sanctuary. So anybody who's liberal is obviously running a sanctuary city, right? So therefore, you know, all of his political enemies, he can just go after. Yep. We see that time again with him where he wants to go after his political enemies with the rule of law, which isn't the rule of law, the way he implements it. Um, the Justice Department's trying to do that with uh, several instances, and it's um, it's just not the way that we want a president to act. Um, but here we are. Yeah, if, if you're going to have government, limited, like good government, limited government, you, you want all that if we're to have a government. Like libertarians don't – while we – Advocate for no government. Murray Rothbard talked about this in uh, the video is titled Libertarianism by Murray Rothbard. It's a speech to the uh, Michigan Libertarian Party. And he outlines it. He's like, listen, we have to advocate the pure principle. We have to talk about no government or, or you know, anarchism and, and give that pure ideology. But we also have to keep an eye on how to get there. You know, and so so some of people have lost Rothbard's original statement especially by people who revere Rothbard, it's all or nothing now as opposed to the principles of good government. You know, uh, there is no good government. I mean, there has to be 
rules if there is to be government. You know, for instance, if you're going to have a state and it does have control over you, everybody should get a vote in that. You know, like that's that's one principle of it. You know, so I'm getting pushback on some of the, you know, like the, the, the Postal Service stuff. You can make the libertarian case that the Postal Service should not exist, and we should make that case. But let's do it in the most empathetic way so that Todd Hagopian's child isn't hurt in the process, right? Like, there's ways to, to abolish the state. You know, even Murray Rothbard admits that. So go, go check out that video. Um, uh, Darla says, is this the most depressing election Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely it is. Um, so uh, let's go. Let's keep going with the 100 days. Um, replace and repeal Obamacare. House Republicans spent much of 2017, excuse me, trying to figure out legislation that could replace Obamacare without success. A vote that summer would have ended the Affordable Care Act, f- ended up failing in the Senate when Arizona Senator John McCain voted against it. Do you remember when he flew and gave this speech on the floor in the middle of his cancer diagnosis and killed the Obamacare? That was Republicans that killed this, by the way. Uh, it was not Democrats had the numbers. It was Republicans killed. Republicans. Remember for why that happened is that Trump had to pick a fight with him. That's right. Right. Had to create a rift inside the party. Mm hmm. That he couldn't get over because he's personally he personally couldn't get over it. Right? Yeah, so yeah right. Was- he he is his own worst enemy. He could have repealed and replaced and fulfilled that promise had he not been so petty and personally gross. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Uh, congressional Republicans were able to succeed in repealing the Obamacare requirement that people buy health insurance or pay a tax penalty. Good thing. Um, You know, the problem with that is that they they broke the system even worse. And so one of the consequences, because the third leg of the stool was the mandatory requirement to carry health insurance, which no person in America should be forced to buy a product. Health care is a product. It is not a right. You do not have a right to other people's labor. Uh, And health. So a right is something you are granted because you exist. Mm-hmm. Like the right to be left alone by your government, not locked up, the right to say what you want without the government. Free speech is about the government and other people forcing you to be quiet. Be quiet. It is not, I don't want any consequences for my speech. That's not free speech. Um, the, in a libertarian society, you will have consequences for what you say. Just wanted to clarify that. But. There's no labor involved in that. You can say that you can own a gun. You can own a, a, a thing without suffering consequences at the hand of the government. That's a right. But the right to health care doesn't exist because you cannot force a nurse or a doctor to treat you. You cannot force other people to pay for that treatment. And so um, Part of the importance of the Obamacare working was the fact that there was the mandatory insurance. You had everybody had to buy into the pool to to force money into that system to keep it funded. And if you didn't have that, the system would break. Well, what happens when the system keeps getting worse and worse and worse? Not only is there a human cost to that, a very real human cost at the hands of public policy, 
bad public policy from both Democrats and Republicans. This is going to need to be replaced. And when it needs to be replaced in some emergency fashion, it's going to matter a lot who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And so then it again becomes the greatest stakes in election history, because if this guy wins, we're going to get socialized medicine. Or if this guy wins, they're going to give us free market health care like George. Bo- oh, never mind. He socialized medicine further with Medicare D. Are you going to say Reinhold? Well, the thing is, too, is that when you when you do that sort of thing and create the problem, as it were, so Obamacare is the ACA is working in a way, right, because it has those mandates in it. So we don't agree with those. We don't think they should be there, but it's working. You break it. Right. So that it's still there, but it's now not functioning as well. Your opponent gets to hit you with that and say, look, we had a plan in place that was working. He broke it. You need to listen to us for the solution. And it just gives more power to the liberals to institute more control over our lives mm-hmm. through through our health care, which is a horrible idea. But the people who are voting are going to see that they're going to listen to that argument. And now you've just given that ammo away because you because you couldn't think through that. And to beat up a new Republicans. Nixon and the HMO Act in 72 is a big reason why our current health care system is broken mm-hmm. and why it's he basically let the insurance company write federal law on insurance and health care. And they gifted themselves a lot of money. And so the prescription companies get rightly beat up on on stuff like opioids. But it's the insurance companies that are the worst actors in all of this because they were able to buy off Nixon to craft the legislation that they want. If you remove the ability to buy off politicians, all of a sudden they don't have the ability to force us to have this horrible health care. Obamacare, which is not functioning and not working well, is an idea by Mitt Romney. And that was not lost in all of that debate, is that Obama basically copied Romney's health care. And that's a big reason why a lot of Republicans were not hot on Romney, is because Socialized medicine was his, but in the federal system, Massachusetts can do that, and Indiana can choose a different path, and you can have 50 different laboratories and experiments. The problem is that Massachusetts kept going to the federal government to get bailed out, and so then the argument becomes it's cheaper if we do this across the country and and stop bailing these individual states out. Harry, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, we should. Uh, I like the the idea of the different laboratories, just like here in Indiana, the Healthy Indiana Plan, uh, which worked for a while until you know, like I said, it keeps getting bailed out or used to expand Medicare. Uh, the there's just these a lot of these major cities always need always for some reason need bailing out. You would think it'd be a lot of the small towns do take these massive. Oh no, they get subsidies. Trust me. The yeah, they do. But it's and the fifth risk, farmed ones. Yeah, the, it's all farm stuff. Yeah, the it's fifth risk ar- articulates this beautifully. He goes, the irony is, and he lists all these different programs uh, <laughs> that he's talking to from somebody in the ag department. The irony is that all these Trump supporters live in towns that are surviving on federal dollars <laughs> through not just farm subsidies, but free healthcare clinics and and jobs programs and. These these rural areas that are supposedly for uh, they're really just wanting power so they can keep their money flowing to them instead of uh, all the money going to the liberal cities. We need our farm subsidies. It's the the, the right is just full of contradictions like that. 
And then with Boston, you've got the billion dollar with the Big Dig project, which they've also lost money on several different dig, times. Trying dig. To, yeah, the Big Dig yeah. when they were, yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Anyways, the, the, if you look up the, with Mitt Romney and all of them, with the Big Dig project, with them, just billions of dollars, just trying to dig under the, the stupid ocean in the bay to leave traffic instead of just like moving, you know, just, you know, allowing people to, because they're centralizing power in the center of Boston. So it's really hard to get around, you know? So they thought, they thought it was cheaper just to dig under the freaking ocean in the bay. So, uh, so continuing on this, congressional Republicans were able to succeed in repealing the Obamacare requirement that makes people buy health insurance or pay a tax penalty. Republicans successfully neutralized the penalty on people who were able to afford health insurance but chose not to buy it. The requirement to buy health insurance was known as the individual mandate. In their 2017 tax bill, the Republicans set the penalty at zero. In December of 2018, a federal judge in Texas ruled that the repeal of this essential part of the law meant the entirety of Obamacare is therefore unconstitutional. In June, the Trump administration asked the Supreme Court to overturn the ACA. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the appeal, but not before October, with a ruling likely to come in 2021. Uh, let's move on to the wall. Build a wall. Trump's efforts to get full funding for a wall on the border with Mexico resulted in political fights that saw the government shut down in 2018 in lieu of signing a funding bill that did not include the wall. Trump eventually declared a national emergency, allowing him to move a Defense Department spending to wall con wall construction. Was there some sort of emergency like you know, up up before the 2018 election, I remember uh, hordes of caravans of Hondurans were going to invade us. The, and that the invasion. are they not coming to this shithole anymore, or is it just uh, well, th that we well, just no, Trump took the money and he built the wall and increased border security, mm -hmm. so they turned around and went back home. He won. Right. Yep, we won. And then Mexico paid for it by building their own wall. Wrong. Uh, detailed U.S. government that, right? no detailed U.S. government uh, data about Trump's border wall project obtained by the Washington Post shows the administration and this is why he Jeff Bezos is Washington Post these people who report facts like this drive him crazy and again it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show the bullshit artist doesn't want light exposed to his bullshit and so the press is a natural target because they expose his bullshit that's why politicians always beat up on the press because as you can hear throughout this entire episode trump has said one thing he wants you to think one thing you repeat that stuff like oh the wall's almost complete or oh he's the greatest tax cutter in american history you repeat that politician's bullshit while rejecting the facts presented by a washington post and so yes the media is corrupt and yes the media has problems but it doesn't mean that it isn't all bad because then you're just relying on the bullshit of a politician, which is completely stupid and anti-intellectual and libertarians are better than that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the post shows the administration is far from delivering on its promise to finish more than 500 miles of new barriers by early next year. Though Trump had insisted Mexico would pay for the project it has been funded entirely by the United States government at costs that reach nearly $30 million per mile in southern Texas. So far, the Trump administration has spent $15 billion. I will, build it. I will build it so cheaply, I can build a beautiful wall. What a wall. 
the White House is planning to divert an additional $7.2 billion from this year's military budget, bringing the total amount of money available for the project to $18.4 billion, enough to complete nearly 900 miles of new barriers by 2022. Of that, just $5.1 billion has been authorized by Congress. Now, Reinhold, give me a refresher. Who has the purse string power in the Constitution? Which branch of government? So, as I remember it, the House of Representatives is supposed to be the portion of government that all spending bills originate from. And all spending is to be done there because that was the will of the people. That was where... They they entrusted that to, to the House because the House was the closest to the real-time representation of what the people wanted. Exactly. And Trump is trying to take that power for himself, as we saw recently with an, an executive order. Um, <clears throat> so... I was trying uh, to be funny with that. Then I realized I just wanted to give the right answer. Yeah. So at what point does it become cheaper just to buy Mexico? I don't know. Can we, we should annex it and be, you know, make it a United, uh, a new state. I mean, we, that's yeah. that's the way you do that. You create it as the demilitarized zone if you're really that worried about. What country did he the, say he wanted to buy? Oh, Greenland. He wanted he wanted to he wanted to trade Greenland <laughs> for Puerto Rico. And <laughs> and people deal. make a joke about this. And recently, we found out that he was serious. He actually looked into what it would take. Mm-hmm. And tried to make the deals, and he was rebuffed by Denmark, who Good. actually owns Green Greenland right now. I think Denmark does, uh, and, and just, they just laughed at him. In just a few uh, moments, Reinhold, I'm going to ask you about uh, property rights and 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 Hoppe arguments. So uh, mentally oh, be preparing. Okay. Uh, nearly all right. nearly all 216 miles built since Trump took office replaced outdated or dilapidated fencing. So all that, all the stuff that, oh, fi- he's finished all these miles. He's updating dilapidated fencing and then claiming that as new wall. Uh, again, bullshit. Only about three miles of new border wall system has been constructed in locations where no barriers previ- previously existed, according to Homeland Security's June 19th status report on the wall. Trump's administration says only three new miles of wall has been built. Woo! Um Reinhold, don't you need a strong national border? Because without it, you don't have a country. And if you don't have a country, you can't properly protect property rights. So therefore, immigration is incredibly important. So why is a left libertarian like you uh, against building a border wall? Um, so the problem with the border wall is that that it... <sighs> That suggests that the government owns land, that the government is control of that land uh, instead of the people who actually own the land, right? Um, so the people – there are a lot of people on the border right now in Texas especially who don't want a border wall. They don't want to stop immigration because they work with these people all the time and they want them to come over and help fill jobs and do things for them. So it's turning southern Texas blue, uh, all the border con- – counties are blue now um, because the the government can't when the government tells a property owner what to do with their own property 
that's basically your neighbor telling you what to do with your property. That's your neighbor telling you, uh, we don't like that you have your door open and you're letting those people in. So we want you to stop doing that. And they're coming over with guns and making you do that as opposed to saying, look, let's, you know, if we agree to that and the property owner says, Hey, I am on the border of this country, uh, go ahead and put a, put one up and then we can, you know, have that border there. Fine. Let them do that. But that's not what's happening. Right. So, um, the the problem then comes into you have the rest of the country, people in Indiana, people in uh, South Dakota, Montana, telling people in Texas and California how they should run their states and how they should run their properties, right? And what they should do with their properties. Right. Excuse yeah. me. Uh, want- and Harry, go ahead. Add to that. I was going to say like, and the yeah, because there's, you know, um, what Ryan Hall's point, like, it's not all the people up in these other northern states. So like, hey, close it. It's also people like, I, hey, I need those. I need immigration open. I, you know, no one's going to, you know, pick strawberries for like $5. Open that, open that damn wall up. But if you let everybody in, mm-hmm. as evidenced by Europe, if you let everybody in, your culture will be greatly diminished, diminished Reinhold. Yeah, that's not how history has proven out to be. Uh, history has shown that the more cultures you let in, the more robust you become, the more uh, the better you become. Look at what happened to this country and explosion that it had when it was uh, had no immigration policy whatsoever. Anybody could come here up until the the end of the eighteenth, uh, the nineteenth century. There were no laws against people coming here and working. You know, they weren't allowed to become citizens unless, you know, they met certain criteria. So therefore they couldn't vote in the, in the type of government, but they were allowed, there was no stopping anybody just coming here and setting up a shop and buying some property and (laughs) starting a business or working for somebody else who wanted some employees to work for them. That happens. uh, And be, and we became the greatest, you know, industrialized country under those, under those auspices. Right. Mm -hmm. And as we've increased and increased uh, immigration regulation, we're, we're losing manufacturing. We're losing that um, ability to to really handle uh, the needs of the country. The more see, the more people you bring in, and this is why I find interesting is everybody's like, well, if we bring all these people in, we won't have jobs for everybody. And so, well, as you bring some if somebody comes into the pro- in the country, they're going to need a place to stay. They're going to need food. They're going to need uh, a housing. Well, you just created jobs for all those people who do all that stuff to yep. generate more housing and more and create more food and create more clothing. Money then goes into those people's hands mm-hmm. and the pie increases. It doesn't mm-hmm. get cut up. Yeah, the people get less. The right? evidence and you can go back and listen to Harry and I talk about uh, DACA back when we did that episode or read our show notes on it. When you look at the the money that is generated by the DACA kids, which was like what, like ten million people, or it's it's not a it's not a significant amount of people. Uh, I don't remember the exact figure, but like they it was like a trillion dollars. I they think. generated yeah. eight hundred eight hundred billion dollars yeah. a year, and if you sent back that like a million or ten million people or whatever it was, you were going to lose a trillion dollars in the economy out of uh, out of new purchases. So, you know, you, if you look at uh, women going into the workforce, for instance, the, the fear of women going into the workplace was that it would take jobs that, that men did. 
what ended up happening is you had brand new industries being created, things like the nonprofit industry or the expansion of the healthcare system. And so you didn't, you didn't, yeah, you had men. So this so is the replacement theory of they will replace us. They will blah, blah, blah. It's, it doesn't make sense. And it's not borne out by history or statistics. They, and so uh, the reality is, and libertarians, the paleo-libertarians, I guess I would say, is just get comfortable with multiculturalism because the reality is millennials are 40% mixed race, and that's only going to increase. And there are different cultures in the world, and you know, you're not – There's thousands not, of different cultures in the United States. That's what people e, don't understand is everybody's talking about e the culture of the United unum. States. Thank you. At, there, what I does mean, e pluribus I, unum mean? The motto uh, of the country. Yeah. Out of uh, one, out of one, is one, it out of one many? Out or, of many one. Well, yeah, out of many one. It's, many one. It, meaning the diversity is the strength of the United States because all these different yeah. cultures come here in a, like people ask all the time, what's the most libertarian country? I, I will say the internet, but you could say the United States because the early, with one glaring, horrifying, tyrannical exception, a the United States was, uh, a libertarian experiment in that many different cultures came together and created the strongest economic system ever without a lot of constraints from the federal government and, and uh, from state governments really. And that's really how America turned into America until, you know, the Vietnam era when you started to see a lot of federal intervention into everything. And then now we're not. Right. So well, it was a little bit after the Great Depression that was experimented with and implemented. And then that was built upon during the, the Vietnam era and expanded on with Nixon. So everybody thinks that Johnson's the one with the war on poverty. And so Johnson made a speech where he was going to be be the war on poverty guy and implement all these programs to eliminate poverty from the United States. And so people then key back on that and say, well, that's the reason everything went crazy. And we had all these all these uh, government involvements into business. But the thing is, is that Johnson never f did anything with that. He made the speech and then nothing. And Nixon came in and is the one who started implementing all of that. So um, uh, Wes writes, and I apologize for covering your face, Harry. As a native Texan, I can tell you we don't have an immigration problem. We have an entitlement problem. Many of us Texans are not for a wall because it doesn't accomplish anything. We want to secure our border. We need to fix work visas and immigration systems. Uh, Darla writes, immigration is completely different now than back when America wasn't overcrowded. America can't grow land-wise. People are still reproducing and living longer than ever because this is a problem. That's sort of the Lebensfrau uh, <laughs> argument. We need more leg room. We're not, we're not overcrowded. I don't. It, if you look at the density, population density, um, and third party just mentions it, the it, you can fit like the entire. It, if we had the population density of Paris, we could fit the entire United States into the southern part of Texas. Right. Just in that population density. Right. So there's these there's these graphs that show the population density. If you have different different countries, population density in the United States, we are so open. There's so much land. There's so much area. Uh, 
that this idea that we're overpopulated is is just crazy. Correct. Um, there, there's concerns about resources, but we're the biggest exporter of all these resources in the world with the food and uh, all this stuff that, yeah, we're even the biggest exporter of, of oil now, I think. So why aren't we able to handle more people? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me when you look at the math of it. Last, right. uh, go ahead, Harry. Before we... I was going to say, and, and with our economic system, we are able to use the resources we have correctly. It's one of the beauties of capitalism. It's it's the capitalist system of uh, using resources which have other uses that are scarce. That's it's what we're doing. And it's the reason that China has to keep constantly expanding and doing things because mismanaging of natural resources and other reasons. But the majority is that. Wouldn't want to come here. The reason right. they want to come here is because there is opportunity. There is mm-hmm. a place to live. There is a place to grow, and we see that. Right. Yeah. Our, our, the, our farming techniques, everything like that, allows us to be able to feed and export. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I drove out. Um, I, I drove out towards my ex in laws yesterday, and I haven't been out there in forever. And it's uh, about three or four miles, and and it's right outside of downtown Indianapolis. Like you're ten minutes from downtown in this particular area. Uh, it's it's Acton for those who who know Indianapolis. And uh, there's nothing out there. Like it used to be cornfields when we'd go out there uh, ten years ago to to family holidays. There'd be nothing out there. I'm driving out there yesterday. There's all of a sudden within a two year span. There's a Kroger. There's a McDonald's, there's a gas, like it, all the, like this little town sprang up. And I live in a part of town. Um, well, this is sort of the history of suburbs. So where I live, I've lived here around 10, 15 years since 2007. And uh, it is the second largest population of Chin outside of Burma. There are Christians who are persecuted by the Buddhists in Burma. So they come here, seek asylum, move into this area. And I have watched as the white people in this area have moved from here and expanded eastward into the more rural areas. Uh, and, you know, I went to the laundromat to, to wash uh, comforter last weekend and, and just hung out. That laundromat 10 years ago was a lot of white people. Now it is a lot of chin. Doesn't matter to me, right? Like, you know, I, I've enjoyed getting to know this population of people over the last 10 years. Um, but that's that's sort of how suburban sprawl works, right? Like, and that's that's part of the criminal justice reform argument is that mm-hmm. as, you know, if the chins start to show up and drive around in the white area, though, the that's when the tickets start getting. Uh, that's why, you know, Harry gets pulled over in Acton and I don't. Um so to kind of help police some of that stuff. But my point is that you have a lot of expansion, a lot of area like there, there, you know, uh, Darla made the point. Nobody wants to live in North Dakota. Yeah, but there's lots of people want to live in Indianapolis and they're willing to drive 30 minutes to downtown Indianapolis if they work or even an hour if they want to live more in the country. Um, there's plenty of room in this country uh you know, we're the third largest country in the nation. You know, not everybody wants to live in, um, you know, downtown Indianapolis is a great example. Like we really have had a 50 year rise from Indiana place to Indianapolis and, uh, you know, 41,000 new jobs created over the last 50 years. We now have 41,000 people working in the hospitality and entertainment industry. So we're hurting right now a lot, but um, the convention business and, and sports, big game sports, you see a lot of, you know, the, the Indy 500s this weekend or the NCAA is headquartered here. Okay. And 
that you know that has spawned a downtown a rising of a downtown right i don't like going downtown anymore because i don't like traffic um but i will go downtown because it still is easily accessible there are new ways to to build a city so i just don't agree that 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 we're out of room um go ahead i have yeah, i have 40 acres yeah that i live on so he was gifted it. You know, if after, we have more the Northwest Territories Act, room, well, no, no. If we have more demand for more room, the property prices would go up. Yeah, I would make money by selling off some of that land. And if I felt like I didn't want to live on this land anymore and go somewhere else where it's more rural, and I wanted to go to Montana or South Dakota to retire, then I could sell it, and I could get split up into forty or fifty different houses, one acre each, right? Forty one acre properties. Um, I mean, take away five acres because it's a five acre lake, but mm-hmm. you, you have that built. You have the houses built around that. You could have all of this taken care of. I mean, that's how you expand that out. And then, I if if I really want that space, then I can go somewhere else where the space still is is needed or wanted. It's really I mean, anti. It's, it's really antithetical to liberty because you hit on something. The the property prices go up, and and it's a principle in history uh, that the more economic prosperity there is the more people there are because people feel safe and comfortable reproducing so food co- you know it's the malthusian trap and and so you have the less food the less people the more food the more people and if you live in a libertarian society if our argument is that by moving towards a stateless society there will be more prosperity there will be more people so it really is an undercutting of the future that we say this this closed off protectionist mindset that that closed border libertarians will also often argue it has some contradictions in it that uh, that won't play out over time like the the adoption and, and I'm not saying libertarians I'm saying the alt right for instance they have adopted politics and the mindset of the the European right which is it. it like Bismarck is God tier, right? Because Bismarck wanted to build a power state that conserved the power of the Junkers and kept that predominant culture in place, the nobility in place, and was willing to fight with aggression any progress from classical liberals in the in the uh, Prussian state. Well, the alt right. That's why they talk about monarchy a lot. Right. They want it. They want to eventually they're going to go to the monarchical system and they want to uh, protect the property rights of the existing power because a lot of those people aren't smart enough for liberty, aren't smart enough for uh, economic opportunity is sort of the underlying thing of what an alt right thinker generally says. Right. So they're eventually going to end up and that's why they love Donald Trump because he's willing to give it to them is I need to fight the left because we need to conserve that predominant culture and predominant economic system. And libertarians reject that wholeheartedly. And in the tradition of classical liberalism, we say, you know, out of many, you develop strength through diversity and the, the market processes are enriched by people with many different experiences because one person who comes from a different culture can add to a project or a market process that a person who has a hegemonic worldview because they're only around their own kind may not see. Right. And the other argument I hear too on, on immigration is that we need to keep 
the labor pool smaller so that prices, wages keep up. And that if you bring more people in, then you're lowering wages for everybody. So you're, you're costing people money. And it, it just goes to me, it goes against the whole idea of free market, right? You have a free market of, uh, of work, uh, of, of labor, just like you would have a free market of other capital. Um, but why would we want to protect that? Why would we want to pay more for products so that people could have a higher living? I mean, isn't that no different than having a uh, minimum wage law? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the effective difference that you're having right there? You're, you're, you're artificially manipulating as opposed to making a law that states, but you're still doing it through law. You're still artificially manipulating those wages to be something that the market would not demand if they had all the resources available to it. Okay, let's end on tariffs. Um, this is another, uh, I know, we're, we're already at two hours, but uh, there's a lot to Trump's record, and this is only like the third of the prep. Part so, one. Yeah, so part <laughs> one, we're going to do, do a lot more on Trump's record because they're, you know, like the immigration discussion, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of this. You can hear the whole uh, thing at wearelibertarians.com. Um, ta- excuse me, tariffs. Uh, where where's my place? Oh, trade and raising tariffs on goods imported into the U.S. Donald Trump, a self-proclaimed quote tariff man, vowed to raise tariffs on goods imported into the U.S. while campaigning to become president. Any country that devalues their currency in order to take an uh, uh, this is what he said. Excuse me. Any country that devalues their currency in order to take unfair advantage of the United States and all of its companies who can't compete will face tariffs and taxes to stop the cheating. And when they see that, they will stop the cheating, Trump said during a campaign rally in Tampa, Florida. Trump has followed through on this promise, citing global trade alert data. Simon Evanette, professor of international trade and economic development at the University of St. Gallen, said as of June 22nd, an estimated $618 billion of U.S. imports were affected by tariff increases implemented under trump essentially he has taxed the american economy an additional 618 billion dollars um as of january 7 2020 the u.s has imposed tariffs on 16.8 percent of imported goods measured as a share of the value of all u.s imports china 2020 uh, in january 2020 a phase one deal lowered the tensions but left the tariffs When the U.S. and China signed a trade deal at the beginning of the year, most of the tariffs remained in place. The U.S. maintained levies of up to 25% or an estimated $360 billion on U.S. imports. Even the administration conceded it fell short of original goals, describing it as phase one of the agreement. North American tariffs. In 2018, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico agreed to a deal that will govern more than $1.1 trillion in trade between the three countries. The pact, which has been slowly making its way through the legislatures of the three countries, will replace NAFTA from 1994. There are some differences, including stronger labor provisions and tougher rules on the sourcing of auto parts, but analysts say the significance remains to be seen. So he's replacing NAFTA with NAFTA and saying it's a great deal. Japan and South Korea, uh, one of Trump's first moves was to withdraw from the TPP, a proposed 12-country deal that eventually went ahead without the U.S., putting U.S. exports at a disadvantage. 
Trump has since claimed two bilateral agreements, one with Japan and one with South Korea. But the changes were so limited that congressional researchers said they barely qualified as trade deals. Congressional researchers said it barely qualified. It's the greatest deal. I made the greatest deal. In the case of South Korea, the most notable provision actually preserved U.S. tariffs on lightly truck duty, light truck duties. So he's saying, basically, I'm going to impose tariffs to get a great trade deal and then repeatedly puts the tariffs permanently in the trade deals, which means those trade deals have to be renegotiated by a future president to remove the tariffs. With Japan, the U.S. won either levy cuts or complete elimination of $7 billion worth of agricultural goods, but this was the same access the U.S. would have received under the TPP. So in his agreement with Japan... He basically got the same deal as with TPP. He withdrew from the TPP for no advantage whatsoever based on the trade deal he uh, set with Japan. With Europe, the U.S. and Europe went through a round of tit-for-tat tariffs after the U.S. announced steel and aluminum tariffs, measures that would affect more than $10 billion worth of two-way trade. In October 2019, the U.S. imposed 25% tariffs on $7 $0.5 billion worth of European goods, including scotch, French wine, and Italian cheese. Trump has made repeated threats to impose tariffs on European cars. He has also continued to threaten steep levies on EU goods such as French produce and retaliation for France, France's new digital services tax, which affects U.S. companies. So essentially, he is um, using the tariff system as a weapon against the people that he doesn't like personally. There's no forethought to it. It's sort of like when FDR and, and uh, the book Amity Schles wrote called The Forgotten Man, mm-hmm. she she talks about how, I think it was Henry Morgenthau, who's the Treasury sector, Secretary. They In the Great Depression, one of the reasons it was made worse is that he was arbitrarily setting the uh, the price of gold during the Great Depression. And FDR would literally like call the treasury secretary and go set it at this today. My I'm feeling lucky with two point blah, blah, blah. And Morgenthau said, if the American people knew how FDR was doing it, which was like basically asking his friends for a fun number, like he's playing the lottery, then the American people would be outraged. And that came from his cabinet. And that's similar here, right? It's just arbitrarily using tariffs and taxing goods without any kind of strategy or eight D chess to get better trade deals but then the trade deals he's getting are the exact same ones as the ones he withdrew from. It makes no sense, Harry. And it's 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 that that work, that side to side work that you all work with these people that do stuff like that. That just like look, I'm moving. Look, look how much work I'm doing. I'm doing right. more work than yeah. you. Arranging look the deck ter- chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm doing all. I'm doing better work than you. You're moving really slow, but I'm actually going somewhere. I'm getting close to my goal. You know, it's. Reinhold, we all work. Go ahead. I was going to say we all because we like everyone can think to themselves and go to their jobs. It's like I work with people like that. You sure do. You sure do. Probably down the well, not down the hall anymore, but you know. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, so go ahead, if, if you talk about again about the uh, um, the Great Depression too, see, people seem to forget about Smoot Hawley and how <laughs> we instituted a trade a global trade war. That is the main cause of the Great Depression at the time. So um, because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it was this issue or that issue. But those were all centralized to countries, right? So 
why would it have been global? Why would there have been a global um, depression? And, and the fact that we were instituting like um, tariffs on like 50 to 60% of all goods that were imported uh, and the countries we were doing that to then instituted their own tariffs on stuff that we were exporting. So nobody could sell that stuff to anybody anymore. So nobody could make any money and the goods they were getting were too expensive. That caused everything to start to nosedive. That was what really prolonged that great depression was because we had in effect raised taxes on everything. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, and that's the thing about Trump's uh, tariffs is I think it was calculated out that it was the third largest tax increase in U.S. history. So at the beginning of his term, we got a small little tax cut that gave everybody a grand maybe uh, mm-hmm. back and then hit him with the third largest tax increase. And everybody thinks that he's, you know, this great economic hero. And all he's doing is, like I said before, talking to the Fed and getting them to manipulate the, the the money supply so that the stock market goes up, which makes a lot of rich people richer. Meanwhile, we've got like small businesses who are down 30% right now in, in uh, achieving goal revenues while we have the top companies who are making money and increasing their, their positions. And you see that, so that's how you see the stock market increasing because all the top companies are listed on the stock market. So those numbers go up, but the little guy is getting screwed. Yeah. And that's what always ends up happening. So, so you mentioned, uh, yeah, tariffs are taxes, like bottom line. And uh, he's taking money out of the economy. Now, you mentioned the tax cuts, and we uh, I accidentally skipped over this in the prep. But let's talk about the tax cuts, because this is a thing that libertarians often say, hey, we like this. This is great. This He's the biggest tax cutter in American history. We say that without ever fact-checking and seeing if it was actually the largest tax. We just repeat the words of a politician and instead of actually looking at it. So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was the largest overhaul of the tax code in three decades, and it created a single corporate tax rate of 21%. Now, the reason that uh, we oppose business taxes, business taxes are a double tax on the American citizen. There is corporations are not people. We don't we don't buy that. Corporations are f- created solely by the government, by the state. And the uh, the corporate tax, when, when you tax a company, that money comes from three places. Uh, potentially, you can cut shareholder value, a.k.a. the people that in, have invested in the company. And these businesses often want to be competitive in uh, in the stock market to attract investors. So that's not going to happen. They can increase the cost of their goods, which they normally pass any business tax on to the consumer. So you are paying that with money that has already been taxed, which is why it's a double tax. But they can't raise their prices too high or they'll mark themselves out of competition. Or they can pay their employees less and give them less benefits. Guess which they choose to do, the bigger the corporate tax rate. And so once you cut the corporate tax rate as low as possible, businesses then have capital freed up to pay their employees more, to hire more employees, give them more benefits, invest in new projects that then hire more people. And so when you cut the corporate tax rate, you increase employment and employment opportunity. And the across the board, you increase the standard of living for people. And so this was a good thing. We have, we have uh, 
Not much in this episode to praise him on, so we will say that cutting the corporate tax rate from 30-something to 21% is a good thing, and it is why we saw a job, uh, a growth in jobs. Now, uh, the law, now many of the tax benefits set up to help individuals and families will expire in 2025. Uh, now, typically what happens is they just get, they get put back in place. They're never removed. Um, that's why they add these sunset provisions as a, as a negotiating tactic to get the other side to allow, allow it. But it always usually stays in place. H&R Block reports that the average tax cut for a family was approximately $1,200 based on returns from 2018. So you got $1,200 back, but you probably paid, I think the number was $900 in tariff taxes. So you, you came out ahead with uh, 300 extra dollars. Um, so again, Trump shoots himself right in the foot. Trump vowed the $1.5 trillion in sweeping tax cuts he spearheaded in 2017. He did not spearhead it, by the way. Paul Ryan did, who had been looking for his, his chance to cut taxes forever. Uh, and Mitch McConnell spearheaded it. Donald Trump uh, weirdly stayed silent on Twitter to, to get this passed. That was his contribution, was not talking. Uh, 2017 wouldn't increase the federal deficit because they would pay for themselves through faster economic growth. The tax law projected to add $1.8 trillion to the deficit over the next decade, and any additional revenue brought in by economic growth would be offset by higher interest payments on a bigger national debt. So, yes, it is true that the extra economic growth will help offset those tax cuts, but because you have so much debt that we're adding consistently, it's a wash. If not, you're upside down. And so getting the, the debt under control again, we'll save all of us money and we'll maybe get more than $1,200 a year back in our money. Um, so that is, those are the details of the tax cut. So basically, largest or not largest tax cut in American history, it doesn't really matter. Thanks to tariffs and thanks to uh, the national debt, you didn't really come out ahead with the tax cut. Uh, you're muted. You came out behind, I think. I mean, there was... A lot of a lot of the good that we were hoping were going to come out of the tax cuts too for businesses, where they would give better wages to to people and hire more people. I mean, we were already on a trend of lowering unemployment. If you look at the line of that trend, it just continues, right? It's, there's no adjustment, there's no change in those numbers. So what we found out is that a lot of companies ended up using those tax breaks to go back and buy back stock and make themselves more stable as companies, which was a good thing to do. And they probably want to do that first and then pass it on. Um, but that was, that was what we really found out of what happened. Um, because I, I think part of that was just because there had been so much fluctuation in, in everything that had happened since the 2007 crisis, right? So businesses have been going and trying to increase and do better since 2007. And you ended up with the situation where we were just kind of ignoring certain things that were happening. We, we had more bubbles that were populating up in the economy. And b even before the, the COVID thing, we were starting to see cracks. We were starting to see the possibility of a recession happening. Uh, this idea that we were going to hit 4% GDP and just keep there that never, that never came through. We, we dropped down in GDP. We were never, I think we hit one quarter where we were above four and then dropped after that. Right. So we were seeing little, little issues that were bubbling up 
and bubbles that were going to end up exploding. And then I think COVID came along and gave everybody the excuse to go in and try to fix all of their companies to, to uh, eliminate all that. Yeah. All right. So um, we can, we can say, oh, we, we had this great economy and then COVID came and destroyed it. And I don't think that's really what history is going to bear out when you look at the numbers and how things really were progressing at that time. Uh, things were leveling off and things were, were caught. There were, there were cracks that were being exposed. Yeah. I think people uh, blame, just, I think people blame government shutdowns for all of it. And that just isn't accurate. The reality is that the economy was softening and that there was going to eventually be a downturn. How many of these companies would have made it through a downturn at all? And the market was already changing its behavior due to a reaction. Like you had the NBA shutdown, you had the NCAA shutdown. It wasn't until like a week or two later that the government, that, that Trump and the CDC, which really were the impetus for the government shutdowns across the nation, because Donald Trump gave cover to local and state governments to shut down. And that's when it really started to get implemented because, you know, San Francisco, I remember laughing at San Francisco going, oh, they don't even have a case. What are these idiots declaring an emergency for? You know, like everybody was beating up on those liberal politicians on the coasts who were doing shutdowns. It wasn't until Donald Trump gave everyone cover with his, you remember his little postcard, Donald Trump CDC guidelines. So it's hilarious to see so many people put faith in Donald Trump that he's going to fight the shutdowns when he literally sent us all a postcard taking credit for it. Like <laughs> another one of those bullshit contradictions that that he says one thing, he does one thing and says another, and then everybody just buys it. Um, but the the markets were already starting to signal that they were going to make changes of some sort. Would the changes be as uneven, as deep, as long-lasting, as punishing to certain industries? Absolutely not. Like, there was going to be a market disruption because of the pandemic. That was always going to be the case. It is not 100% the government that caused restaurant workers or Live Nation employees to not work. It was always going to have some market impact. But the point is, is that without government intervention, it wouldn't have been uneven. It wouldn't have been as deep. It wouldn't be as long lasting. It wouldn't be as political. More people would cooperate because there wouldn't be the backlash and resentment because they're being forced to do something instead of persuaded. To me, that's the best argument for libertarians to make as opposed to COVID isn't real and you're all being a, a sucker if you're wearing a mask and it's a hoax. Like the 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 market was going to change and some of these businesses were going to have trouble regardless. But it you would have less joblessness and you wouldn't have an inflation of the currency because all of a sudden they're printing twelve trillion dollars through the Fed and Congress to to hand out to to whatever business they feel deserves it today and you know, while giving us a token twelve hundred dollars, so it, it, the the reality is there was always going to be somewhat of a downturn. But like every other downturn and economic cycle, it wouldn't be as severe and long lasting if it weren't for the federal government trying to centrally plan the economy and messing it up completely in the process by picking winners and losers. Called, yeah, that was called a soft landing. That's what uh, <laughs> Greenspan was was always. Uh, heralded for is he created a soft landing after 87 the 87 black monday blah 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 so um 
they thought, oh, he had done this. He had he'd created this offline, but all he had done is take the problem and convert it into another area and created a, a bubble that ended up causing the 2007 problem, right? Yeah. So it, it's just, you, you watch, so there's a great documentary, uh, uh, Money for Nothing, the uh, inside the Federal Reserve. And it really gives a great history from the Federal Reserve from the very beginning and how it got created all the way through to the 2007 um, collapse and how the Fed was really at the center of that. And it was actually at the center of all the great, you know, economic disruptions of the day because they didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to do something and they failed miserably. Stagflation in the 70s, you know, having to go off the gold standard. All of that was because of bad decisions on their part. And the first failure they had was their reaction to the um, the Great Depression and stock market crashes. So um, I, I recommend that movie very much, that documentary. But it's it's really telling to see how how much that manipulation, that soft landing that everybody thought, everybody thought that the numbers had proven right, that we were able to mathematically figure out, figure out debt and economics. And the problem is, is that people are involved and human nature is involved. And when you try to mathematics something out that has human nature involved, you have outliers and you have things that you're not going to see and you're not going to plan for. And a lot of economy people and I see this a lot in, in libertarian circles where people look at, yeah, <laughs> the, well, not just economists, but people who believe in the economics. Like right. economics is the basis for libertarianism, people. Right, right, right. right, right. All libertarianism is is economics, and that's it. And it's like, no, there's human nature and people who act out of self interest um, and out of empathy, and they and they and they don't just always act their you know a, a way you think that they should act. They're going to act differently in certain situations. So you can't math it out like that. You have to understand the nuances that happen in an economy that that you may not see ahead of time. And that was a big problem with with Greenspan is he didn't see the bubble. The, you know, the housing bubble. He didn't see it. He didn't see it as a problem. Right? He just figured housing is just going to get better and we we'll just keep going and it's never going to collapse and then it collapsed. Um, they didn't see the inflation that was happening because they were tying the numbers, uh, the inflation numbers. They had changed the inflation numbers and how they were calculated to measure different things. And so they weren't capturing the information that they needed in order to make a better decision if they were going to centrally manage an economy like that. That's why it's always better to not centrally manage an economy to try to engineer soft landings and slow takeoffs and and even out all the the ups and downs of the market because all they've done is create bigger booms and bigger busts because of it. Harry? Well, yeah, yeah, because yeah, and it's easy to do the they believe they can do it with the stock market and stuff like that because they can see these figures and numbers and know that hey, I put this here, this does that. What because that's they can see they can see, they can see those numbers in their face, but you can't see the unseen numbers, which is Main Street, the yeah, small businesses, those different figures. Those figures come in much much later than when you've manipulated something and you, and you when you do different things. What with Reinhold, like just reinforcing what Reinhold said, it's like human beings react differently. Even though that hey, if I do this, if I do a, human should react B. Not necessarily. They could see it differently and go to D, F, and just say do, and we'll do what they want. All right, time to start wrapping up. Let's uh, give our final thoughts. Uh, let's, uh, Harry, why don't you go first? 
All right, so uh, get my bag of cup out. <laughs> yep. uh, no, 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 serious. I'm not voting for Trump. I didn't vote for Trump. Uh, I only vote for people I don't regret voting for. I've only voted for one person I've ever regretted, and that was George W. Bush. So uh, I'm, I will never make that mistake again. Of course, I don't vote, so I'll be fine. <laughs> Um, I simply just uh, put my name or put a checkbox next to uh, a friend organization that, you know, they'll allow them to for an outreach. But the the thing is, which is crazy about Trump's record is that it's damning to him. And all you have to do is talk to someone act just on his record, the bad stuff he does. There's no need to make up anything. There's no need to get exaggerations or also which, um, uh, dear leader has responded to is the idea of don't only argue think don't argue and just have conversations about things you can have conversations about you know i have you know like don't, if someone tries to bring you in the weeds it's like well i can't argue that but this is what i can't argue these these facts in front of me i can't i can't argue these we can talk about these and the other stuff the conspiracy theory q well and but i can't prove that left or right i can prove that some of this stuff didn't happen but I don't want to do that. I just want to go over this record what he said it was going to happen and what he didn't have. And it's and it's, it's easiest way to make people to get off the to understand that the Trump train is fake. It's not really a train. It's kind of like the hyperloop. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get it. Uh, it's just a car in a tube. But it's a hyperloop. Nope. It's a car in a tube underground. It's a subway with extra parts. It's actually worse. The worst subway you've ever had. But yeah. Sorry, I had a crap on the Hyperloop one more time. I hate that. You Hyperloop. son of a bitch. Ryan Hold, final thoughts? Um, I just, uh, I don't know what else to say other than uh, I think Trump is probably the worst president I've ever seen. I think he's um, incompetent, unable to see anything but his own pre-perceptions. He listens to the wrong people. He gets his information from conspiracy websites. He doesn't understand the inner workings of the machine that he's trying to either run or dismantle in any significant way to either be effective in either one of those functions. Um, He's all about himself. He wants to be on the, um, the monument of the, uh, I can't remember the name of the monument now. The um, with the four presidents on it. Oh, oh, yeah. When he when he, no, literally, he no, literally Rushmore. had yeah. people. He called the South Dakota governor's office. Yeah. He had people call and re- inquire about adding his face to Mount Rushmore. It's that's not a joke. Hubris. That's that's what he wants. He wants to be praised as the greatest president ever. And in my opinion, he's going to go down as one of the worst, and rightfully so. Um, I don't, I don't see any path for him winning re-election, but I am still saying that that's still a possibility. I'm not going to say it's not, uh, but I just don't see the path of it. I think a lot of too many people are start have woken up from the the fairy tale that they told themselves about Trump being president that he was going to do this and do that and do all these other things. And the reality is is that he was never capable of doing any of that. Um, so all he's done is destroy the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party is in tatters. And if he were to win again, I think it I think it really completely annihilates any chance the Republican Party ever doing anything again. Um, yeah, I so 
I saw another prominent libertarian post, you know, we need to appeal to Republicans. I'm like, the Republican brand is forever tarnished and destroyed. And like, what's the virtue of trying? We should, we should, we don't have the luxury of appealing to just the right or the left. Like that's an I think that's a fake argument in libertarian circles. Like we have to, we have to appeal to everyone. Our ideas appeal to both sides. We don't have to try and seduce one side or the other because you just invite those people to come in and, rebuild their brand that was just broken and destroyed i mean trump has yeah my final thoughts are that obama's critique in that trump cannot grow anymore in this office is exactly right like if you have not liked trump 2020 you're not gonna like trump 2021 because this is him he's he's down to the e-team stephen miller is the last one standing like Stephen Miller is an alt-right troll. What alt-right trolls do is they divide people. It's us versus them. They single people out for attack. They scapegoat the other. We're not succeeding because of the other. Uh, they they intentionally inflame opposition through uh, dog whistling by saying things that like like the Tulsa Trump rally on Juneteenth. That was not an accident. That was a classic alt-right tactic, for instance. The black community understands Black Wall Street. They understand Juneteenth. Mr. and Mrs. White America sitting in their living room don't have that context. So you punch that button. So when they overreact, you then go, see, 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 look at them, look at them, look at them. And, you know, it's it's you'll get more of that in the second term. Like Mm -hmm. Donald Trump at the end of the day is that person. He's incapable of managing the single most powerful government in history. And so if you are a libertarian that cares about the force of the state and limiting it, you don't want somebody so incredibly incompetent who doesn't understand what he's doing having that much power. And that's not an argument for Joe Biden. It's just an argument against Trump, right? So it's the fact that the man has enormous power and doesn't know, like, how he's being manipulated by other people in, into using it. So, you know, we've gotten a lot of comments and we'll talk in a future episode about his foreign policy. Donald Trump would absolutely start a war if Donald Trump knew how to start a war. It's not that Donald Trump is a non-interventionist. Donald he Trump threw, is through bombs and killed the second in command of Iran. I don't know how that didn't exacerbate right. a war. Right. Right. He sure tried to do it. Mm-hmm. He's too incompetent to do the job (laughs) and in some ways that works out for us because you start to see regulations being cut and things not being enforced because there's not people there and wars aren't started he doesn't have an infrastructure he has nobody working for him that's really all that competent and so in that way it's really good um but vegetarians love it yeah right so but it's you know (laughs) he's too stupid to start a war is not necessarily a quality you want in your president so yeah but the problem is is that you do that so you do you have the incompetence coming in and and all these things happen and libertarians go oh look we have all these things we kind of always wanted fumbling into place the way we want them to be the problem is is that People see that incompetence. They don't like the chaos. They're going to vote for Biden. Biden's going to come in and fix it. And if you think that his fix is going to be better than it was before Trump took office, you're in for a great uh, awakening because he's going to go above and beyond to fix it. Right. Darla says Trump is smarter than W. Come on, guys. 
I'm not on that train. I don't agree at all. I mean, George W. Bush, I think, was a poor public speaker, but I don't think he was a dumb man. I, He's I don't, actually very smart. I, I don't think Donald Trump is uh, an idiot. I think Donald Trump is so controlled by his own narcissism that he can't get out of that. And the more criticism he gets, like if you watch the Jonathan Swan or, or uh, Chris Wallace interviews, the more criticism he gets, the more he laser like focuses on that and it draws him into even more erraticism. And so that was a great example was just the other day when um, Sean Hannity was interviewing him and Sean Hannity asked him a question about Kamala Harris, teeing him up for a great, you know, shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And he comes back with, well, you were talking about New York Times before, and I just want to go in. And he launches into this whole thing, huge diatribe about, um, I think it was about the New York Times reporting on the Senate report about the uh, uh, the Russian thing. But it's so incomprehensible <laughs> because he's constantly just changing his thoughts mid-sentence over and over and over and over again, and you never really get a good understanding of what he's saying. It's, it's just amazing, like, huge paragraph of just – utter nonsense that he spoke and and it was just funny because it was this was hannity teeing him up <laughs> for for that uh, re-election you know yeah. argument that he was going to make he couldn't let it go right he can't let it go right it's 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 amazing to see harry no i just just agreed with right i was watching it like, because yeah that was the just an alley-oop of the alley-oop he was just you know it was a perfect it was a, it was a Fastball straight down the center, was ready to go. All he had to do was step forward and swing the damn bat. Darla says, "You guys are forgetting how dumb W is." Nope. <laughs> All right, nope. fair enough. I mean, I'm, right, I'm not going to sit here and defend George W. Bush. Yeah, no, yeah. It's like the people who always thought Dan Quayle was dumb. Dan Quayle was never dumb. He was actually a very smart person. Yeah, it's just he got put into a situation he wasn't ready for, and he got made to look like an idiot. But he's he was not dumb. All right, well, we got to wrap up on that. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate everybody listening. If you learned something, please share this episode. If you uh, have not listened to the Biden and uh, Kamala? Kamala Harris episodes, please. Kamala, okay. Uh, Please go check those out. We uh, put the same work in on those. And with that, we will say thank you, and we will see you next Saturday morning.